How busy were you at your busiest as far as being? Of course, I you, think you I had counted one mix. week. I did 20 shows mm. in one capacity or another. I was finally in the late 50s or middle 50s, I guess. I was involved in the production, direction, acting, whatever, on five weekly series. My desk at CBS looked like a joke. I was doing the Harris show as an actor. I was producing and directing suspense. I was producing, directing, editing, writing openings and closings, and co-starring on stage. I was producing and directing Broadway's My Beat, and I was producing, directing, and writing the openings and closings and editing crime classics. And at one point, CBS had three of those shows on back-to-back -back on Wednesday night. And by taping parts of this one and sections of that one, because you couldn't record the music, music had to be live mm -hmm. and had to be put in when you went on the air. And having adjoining studios, one and two, I was able to do it. I was on the air. I had a show on the air from 5.30 to 6. And I had a show on the air from 6 to 6.30. And I had a show on the air from 6.30 to 7. I mean, network feed, some of them. Uh, it was Elliot Lewis night on CBS. Yeah, it was ridiculous. You know, there's no reason for that. It was just silly, but that's just the way the scheduling happened. <laughs> I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 113. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, it's September of 1953, and Elliot Lewis is one of the busiest men in radio. He's the producer-director of four shows and the star of two. We'll join him that fall, following him for a week to find out what life was like for the man, affectionately dubbed by his peers as Mr. Radio. Your love is all that ever if this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Tony Bennett's famous rendition of Rags to Riches, the number one hit in the fall of 1953. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And Burning Gotham, the new historical fiction audio drama set in 1835 in New York City, is still on its way. Go to burninggotham.com for teasers and more information. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Sunday. Remember John Nesbitt's Passing Parade? Oh, sure. Well, we used to do the Benny show from that studio on Mill Road that I described from 4 to 4.30 to the east. And Nesbitt's Passing Parade was at CBS, which is eight and a half blocks away from 4.30 to 5. I was on both shows one week. It never occurred to me that my car wouldn't start, mm -hmm. that I might have an accident, that I... In one script, I had a part where I was playing the mully, and I was going to drive during 
closing commercial, system cue, and opening commercial on the Nesbitt show to CBS to walk in and play Dr. Semmelweis, the man who discovered and cured childbed fever. Hmm. Never occurred to me that there was a problem, that there might be a problem, that it was impossible. When you're young and stupid, you can do almost anything. <laughs> you know, it, something is only dangerous and uh, foolhardy and could be difficult if you have the brains to know it. If you don't know it, you just go ahead and do it. So I suppose when I was doing Remley, I was doing Remley. You do Remley, and when I picked up the script on suspense to work with Judy, then I'm playing that kind of a guy. here to our show this afternoon on behalf of our sponsor. You know, we're one of the few remaining radio shows that's lucky enough to have a sponsor. So if you enjoy yourself during the next half hour, you can do it all As the fall 1953 season got underway, television had completely decimated radio's at-home audiences. Overall radio ratings had peaked during the 1947-48 season, when 16 shows had ratings higher than 20 points. Now just six years later, the most listened to show, People Are Funny, had a rating of 8.4. On TV, I Love Lucy was pulling an astounding 58.8 for CBS, while Dragnet's NBC rating was 53.2. However, radios were becoming an automobile standard, and transistor radios were about to become commercially available. But there was still no accurate way to measure these listeners. Thank you, you're right. <laughs> Two years later, it was estimated that as many people were listening on the go as at home, which meant that even in 1953, People Are Funny's 8.4 rating was actually much higher. There was more value in continuing radio drama than even the networks fully understood. <laughs> On Friday, September 25th, 1953, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show returned from summer break. This audio, recorded on the 18th, picks up before the show signed on the air, with band leader and comedian Phil Harris warming up his audience. The episode would aptly be entitled, The Courtship of Elliot Lewis. And I'll tell you something else about Elliot Lewis. He is a very astute guy. And he said at the time, and he's lived it out, that he would never work with anybody after me. And he never did. Yeah, we were like clockwork. See, he did the Mully guy and two or three things on the Benny show mm -hmm. when I was on that show. And then when we came in, we fit together like a glove. And like he said, and he had the... Uh, say several occasions to work with other people he said no not after Phil and then he went into producing as you know. Comes in the next day says the barber how many head of it? The barber says three the guy goes out again don't come back now the barber's going crazy he don't know what to do so he said to Booth like he says look every day a guy comes in wants to know how many head I tell him he goes out he don't come back if he does it tomorrow follow him I want to know. <laughs> next day the guy came in the barber says how many head of it? The barber says three the guy went out the Booth Black followed him came back in about 20 minutes the barber says where'd he go where'd he go the Booth Black says to your house. <laughs> 
The Harris Face Show peaked in December of 1948 with a rating of 26, but they ended the 52-53 season at a 5.2. Despite the plummeting listenership, Harris was hesitant to take the program into TV, as his wife Alice Faye remembered. In the beginning, when that show first came on, it was live, and I suspect that you had to do at least one, possibly two broadcasts every week. Was there a West Coast and an East Coast? Or you just do one. That's right, we did. I think the show really came into its own when Rexall came in because right. the, uh, first of all... The well, we were rolling then. I yeah. Mean, we really yeah. had it. We had tremendous writers, too, yeah. and it was all terrific. It was really going. Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet. Yeah, they were yeah. terrific. You came in at a just perfect time for radio, yeah, 46. Right. Yeah, right. By the time you left in 54, so much television yeah. had come in on this. Well, Phil wouldn't do it. I'm sorry. I think that's one thing I really am sorry for, that uh -huh. we didn't go into television. Well, he didn't want to do it. He couldn't see another family show on TV. He was afraid. It's too bad because I would say that the Phil Harris Alice Faye show was not another family show. It was no, a very special it was show. Very, it was really and, fun. And your personalities could have easily translated to, uh, yeah, to he television. Couldn't see it. You couldn't tell him well, that. Maybe he didn't want all the extra work. TV is a hard <clears throat> I don't know. He did have a hard time, really, didn't he, for a while, or running, doing the Benny show, and then boom, immediately... Uh, oh, yeah. Doing, yeah, because in the rehearsals and everything. Yeah. yeah. And now, the one and only, Elliot Rowan. That's our cast, ladies and gentlemen. All I ask you to do this is our opening show. Please laugh. If you laugh, laugh loud, or if you cry, cry loud. Everything you do, do it loud, will you please? <laughs> I want to get in here again. Thank you and have a good time. <clears throat> Transcribed. King Arthur had his shining nights. Cleopatra had her day. But you, you lucky people, you, you've got Harris and RCA. RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music and first in television, presents the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. Enjoyment here is the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, transcribed, written by Ed James and Phil Shukin, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, John Hubbard, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Scharf and his music, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Tonight's little epic is entitled The Courtship of Elliot Lewis, or A Drummer Gets Stuck with Any Old Girl, But a Guitarist Can Take His Pick. First, however, here's a word from RCA Victor. Did you see my little Margie, the Goldbergs, or Groucho Marx on television last week? Well, 80 million Americans were able to. Think of it. Elliot Lewis's involvement with Phil Harris went all the way back to their early days on Jack Benny's program, where Harris achieved his greatest fame. I asked Jack once why, because I, I was really serious. We were getting big, big laughs, and I wasn't sure why. I was very happy that we were getting laughs, and so was Phil, and so were the writers. But I wasn't sure why, and I asked Jack. And he said, well, I think it's because the two of you, when there's a really difficult situation, do and say what everybody would really like to do and say if they had the nerve. And they don't have the nerve, so they laugh because you really do, you know, and you just do. And it's funny that way. Harris left the show after the 1951 season when pulling double duty at two different networks became too much to handle. 
On the Harris Faye Show, Lewis had originally played Frankie Remley in a take on Phil's real-life band member. Remley had worked Benny's show, who often singled him out for critical comment. Harris's character was shiftless, lazy, stupid, and alcoholic, and Remley, though never given a voice on Benny's show, became the point man for Harris's virtues. Another reason why every year on the Harris program, the Frank Remley gag was expanded into a speaking role. Remley played the part in the first episode, but it didn't work. Elliot Lewis turned the role into a comic masterpiece. But beginning with this season, Lewis began using his real name after a disagreement between Remley and Harris. The cast also featured Gail Gordon, Robert North, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, and Walter Tetley. Vacations, like everything else, must come to an end. Once again, it's breakfast time in the Harris household, and we find the Harrises, Alice and Phil, in vastly different moods. Alice is grumbling over a red-hot stove, but Phil is smiling and gay as he trips lightly down the stairs. A smile on his lips and a song in his boyish heart. Boyish. <laughs> Pretend you're normal when you ain't. So far, my band's had no complaints. Just call for Harris if you're all alone and find you own some cocktails for two. <laughs> I'm running all the way. Oh, bloody Oh, hi, Alice, honey. Hi. Boy, that was some vacation we had, wasn't it? Vacation? I spent three months as a combination bellhop and bottle opener for you and that Elliot Lewis. <laughs> Some vacation. Oh, now, wait a minute, honey. It wasn't that bad. I remember one day we didn't see Elliot for almost a whole hour. Sure, but we had to hide in a cave. <laughs> Look, just for, forget about Elliot, honey. Don't worry about him. Hey, what do you got for breakfast? Well... You have your choice between three-minute eggshells and some southern fried coffee grounds. Gosh, that sounds... Fried coffee grounds? That's all that's left, Clyde. Elliot got here first. <laughs> but where's the lovable locust now? In the fruit bowl, diving for pears. <laughs> well, where's the paper, honey? Elliot ate it. Now, wait a minute, Alice That's silly Oh, this is getting serious, Phil We've got to get rid of him Look, Alice I can't throw Elliot out into the street Like an old arrangement of tiger rag <laughs> He's my pal And nobody's gonna throw him out All right Then you pay for the food he eats <laughs> You mean out of my allowance? Out of your allowance. That deadbeat's gotta go. <laughs> Why don't he dig up his own meal ticket like I did? <sighs> honey, that's it. Let's find a wife for Elliot. Oh, wife, honey. How crazy can you get? Who's gonna stand for a guy with baggy pants and a wrinkled shirt and a three-day growth of beard and a... Hey, you know, he'd make a good husband. <laughs> Okay, baby, I'll call No, him. no, no, you don't have to. I'll just light the stove. Hi, Alice, what's cooking? Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> oh, hi, Curly. You got up, huh? No, but I ought to be up any minute now. 
Bill, why don't you and Elliot have a nice talk while I fix some more breakfast? Huh? Yeah, honey, we'll do that. Come on, Elliot, sit down. We'll have a nice talk, okay? Okay. What about girls? <laughs> That's a nice thing to talk about. <laughs> well, go ahead. You start. Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. Ain't that Alice a living doll? Don't she look pretty bending over that stove? Yeah. What a stove. <laughs> hey, Elliot, wouldn't you like to have somebody cooking breakfast for you every morning? I got somebody. You have? Sure. Alice. <laughs> I mean, somebody else, you dope. What are you trying to do, Curly? Get rid of Alice? Of course not. <laughs> so what's the pitch? Look, Elliot, I'm trying to tell you, living the kind of life you do is no good. It ain't? No, it's awful. You get up anytime you feel like it. You go to bed anytime you feel like it. If you want to go out with a babe, you go. You got no worries, no responsibilities, no... What's the matter, Curly? How'd you ever get into a mess like that? <laughs> Just lucky, I guess. Now, where was I? What was I saying? I ought to get married. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, just think of it, Elliot. A little house all your own. Your own fireplace. Your own television set. With a built-in bar. And then you come home at night and there's somebody waiting for you. Arms outstretched. Lips outstretched. What am I marrying? Are you bangy? <laughs> Elliot, will you please shut up? I'm sorry, girl. Go ahead. Okay. Now, don't forget, Elliot. You and your wife won't always be two. One day, they'll be the patter of little feet. No bodies, huh? <laughs> That's right, no bodies, just feet. I'm trying to tell you, Elliot. You sit down every morning with the sun shining in the window and, and your wonderful family gathered all around you. There's a feeling of peace and contentment. Everything's quiet. Mrs. Faye's revenge. <laughs> Good morning, Elliot and Philip. Wonderful day, isn't it? I liked it. <laughs> Until you came pussyfooting in. Oh, Phil. Sneaks up and back of you like Indian underwear. <laughs> Philip. Never mind, William. Here's your breakfast. No, breakfast today, pet. Just sign these checks and I'll get along to the office. Why does she have to sign the checks before breakfast? Well, there are just a few for the gas and the phone and your allowance. Go ahead, honey. You better sign them checks. He's going to be giving Give me a pen. Hey, Curly. You mean Alice signs the check for your allowance? Yeah. I don't mind, except when Willie takes them off her income tax as a bad debt. <laughs> <laughs> that burns me up. Alice pays the bills and gives you an allowance, too, huh? The only reason we use Alice's money is to air out the vault. <laughs> it keeps the big bills from mill doing. <laughs> an allowance? 
20 and no. Oh, that's fine, Alice. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, Willie. A real live allowance. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, dear. Hey, wait a second, Elliot. Listen to this. I didn't hear nothing. That's what I mean. He goes out like that every time, the thing. <laughs> You know, Curly, I've been thinking about what you said. You know, about peace and quiet and the rest of that stuff. I sure have been missing a lot, ain't I? See what I told you, Alice? I told you I'd sell him. Okay, Elliot, now all we got to do is to dig you up a wife. What do you got in mind? Well, she ought to be a girl. <laughs> I'm with you 100 proof. Percent. <laughs> a girl. Any particular kind? I see a girl, Curly, you know what I mean? A real feminine type of girl with a checkbook. <laughs> oh, Phil, this is ridiculous. Anybody home? I brought the groceries. You can't just marry a checkbook. Why not? Curly did. I didn't either. And you quit saying stuff like that or say, help me, I'm going to slug Phil. you. Phil. I'll testify against him, Miss Faye. I see the whole thing. You pleaded and pleaded, but he only laughed. Yeah. And threw your quivering young body into the cedar closet. Cut it out now, will you? What are you doing here so early anyway? You ain't supposed to deliver them groceries for another hour. Oh, I'm taking the afternoon off. Me rich aunt is coming to town. And boy, is she loaded. Curly, I'm way ahead of you. <laughs> hey, Julius, buddy, when you say your aunt is loaded, are you referring to her financial or liquid condition? Both. She owns a brewery. A brewery and money? Bingo! <laughs> This is the greatest parlay of all time. The, the patter of little feet running through the mash barrel. <laughs> Checkbooks floating in bourbon. <laughs> Annuities over the rocks. <laughs> what are Jekyll and Hyde talking about, Miss Faye? Oh, uh, nothing, Julius. Say, how would you and your aunt like to have dinner with us tonight, huh? Miss Faye, you mean you'd invite poor little insignificant meat to dinner? And bring the brewery. Huh? <laughs> I mean your aunt. I'll be sitting at the same table with lovely, adorable Miss Faye. Yeah, yeah. I'll be drinking soup that her precious lips puckered for cool off. Yeah, Julius. I'll be eating a souffle she's souffle just for me. <laughs> down, Rob. Get down now. What have I done to deserve this? What have I well, that takes care of that She'll be here for dinner, Elliot Yeah, but what are we doing till dinner? That's easy, we'll play an RCA Victor record You mean until tonight? Look, Elliot, when RCA Victor makes a 45 extended play record They don't fool around <laughs> They really extend it I'll show you Bye-bye, babe, bye-bye Sorry we must fly He I remember talking to Jack Benny one day because we would also double over and do the Benny show. I would be playing the other character on the Benny show and Phil and I would ride back and forth. I remember once going from CBS to NBC, we cut across the parking lot 
because the shows backed into each other. Jack was on out here. Show originated 4 to 4.30, and Phil's show originated when we were both on Sundays, 4.30 to 5. They were on later out here, but that fed New York at 7 o'clock, I guess. And they got a two-passenger bicycle for Phil and I to ride so they get publicity shots of us. Right? <laughs> we almost blew both shows because neither of us can handle a bike. Elliot's a good writer, a good producer, and you know Leonard did all right. He later went with Lucy or somebody, he did very Dan well. Dan Thomas, he did a lot of stuff with. That's uh, right, Sheldon that's right. Yeah. Well, those guys all came up mm -hmm. through the ranks, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, they knew what they were doing. Because when you're around Benny, you were around a guy that he and Fred Allen and guys like that, they're timing, you know. They're uh, like Benny used to have office hours in Beverly Hills. Those writers had to be there, didn't they? They were there at a certain time. He sat at the table. Nobody took bits home like they do now. You do this and you two writers do. No way. You sat right at the table and started this thing. And I've been in there sometime. Jack and I, we really got along. And I've been in there sometime when they had a line for me to break the building down. Mm -hmm. And Benny'd say, no does not fit his character. I've been too long building it up. In other words, he protected, protected. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of other shows, they had a guy in the air one time, they had him doing this, doing that. First thing you know, they burn him out. When he came to me one time, he said, there's no way to kill you. I found you four stories down in the basement. I brought you out, I had you married, I had you drinking, I had two kids, I had you back on the booze again. He said, there's no way to kill you. <laughs> Even in radio's waning days, the show's writing was razor sharp. The program's original writers, Ray Singer and Dick Chevalier, had to be ready for four to five minutes of script cuts to allow for audience laughter. That tenet remained in the 1950s, when Ed James and Phil Shukin handled the scripts. By 1953, the Harris character was one of the most established in the entertainment business. The NBC recording studio used overhead audience microphones. It enhanced the laughter, making it one of the loudest shows on the air. But Curly, move over, will you? I'll open the door myself. Okay, go ahead, Curly. I'm ready to meet my fate. Good evening, I'm... Yay! Hello, boys. I'm Julius's aunt. You can close the door now. I'm in. Close the door, Curly. She might get out. <laughs> wow. It's... Uh, uh, it's... <laughs> sure a nice night for closing them doors. <laughs> it's a, a beautiful night. Gorgeous. 
<laughs> What's your friend doing with a chair? He's, uh, he's hollow. He always carries a chair around like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, 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 uh, uh... <laughs> Would you like to sit down, Julius and Zay? You can call me Clara. Gee, that's a beautiful name. Clara. I used to know a Clara. Only she was a cigar. <laughs> she didn't have a wrapper like yours. <laughs> Quite a card, ain't he, Claire? <laughs> hey, by the way, where's Julius? Didn't he come? Oh, yes. He's, uh, parking the truck. Parking the truck, huh? <laughs> well, we'd better go out and see him, huh, Elliot? We don't want to see that little creep for Will him. you stop? <laughs> okay, no attention to him, Claire. Look, honey, why don't you go into the living room and make yourself comfortable, and me and Elliot have got some business with Julius, huh? Come on, uh, lover. Okay, if you say so. And don't go... Too far, boys. I'll be waiting for you. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Bye, Clara. Hey, Curly. Huh? I can't believe it. Oh, money and a brewery and what a built. <laughs> What about Julius? I like Clara's built better. <laughs> oh, Elliot, listen to me. Don't you realize now if we don't keep Julius out of here, he's liable to queer the whole deal. What do we do, Curly? Come on. Right. You know, I didn't think he'd fit in the mailbox. <laughs> oh, sure. You put him in sideways. Huh? Hey. Hmm? You better come on now. Now we got the business. Let's get going. Where? Are you kidding? No. Where? Where? Clara. 
the body. Your little bride. She's sitting in the living room. Now, come on. Just let me do the talking. Just lay there. Um. Hey, Clara. How's every little thing? You have a charming place, Mr. Harris. Just charming. Place? You call this a place? This ain't nothing. You ought to see Elliot's die at the dump. I mean, <laughs> where Elliot lives. Right, Elliot? Right. He's got a place that's really a place, Clara. Hot and cold running doorknobs, wall-to-wall floors, and on a clear day, Catalina can see him. <laughs> right? Right. Clara? Yes, Elliot. Let's next. Wait a minute. <laughs> Elliot, come over here a minute, will you? I want to talk to you. Excuse us just a minute, will you, Clara? What's the matter, you nuts? You want to queer everything? Why? What do I do? You can't jump at these things. You got to lead up to them kind of gradual. That's just what I did. Well, go slower. <laughs> Talk about something else first. Okay. Clara? Yes, Elliot? What do you think of the Brooklyn Dodgers? <laughs> oh, I think they're wonderful. What's next? Elliot! Still too fast? Certainly it's too fast. You know something, Clara? You got... What's the matter with you guys? You're crazy or something? Hey, wait a minute. Didn't you ever hear of doors? Who needs doors? They stuck me in a mailbox and now I gotta use doors yet. Wait a minute, look. You wanna know how I got out? No, I don't wanna know how you got out. Well, I'm gonna tell you how I got out. No stamps. <laughs> Clara, will you excuse us for just a minute, please? Wait, I tell me father what you've done. Just wait. You know what I'm going to tell me father? He'll have you thrown in jail for the rest of your life. That's what I'm going to tell me father. Come on, Elliot. Let's get him out of here. What do you want to do? Stuff me innocent little body in a trunk? You axe murderers, yes. Elliot, take care of him, will you? You fiends and fiends clubbing you. You're so rude a day you ever laid eyes on me. That's what you're so rude. I got him, Curly. You're so rude a day you ever laid a finger. Okay, take your hand off his mouth, Elliot. Okay. I'll be a lily white body, and when I tell a DA what you do, let him talk, Elliot. Okay. He'll have you electrocuted for life. Are you finished? Bobby is. Now I'm finished. <laughs> Look, Julius, you got us all wrong. We want to be your friends. Yeah, like a cat wants to be friends with a mouse. Keep still, you little rat. Elliot, please. Oh, sure. He wants to be my friend. Listen to him. He wants to be more than your friend, kid. He wants to be your uncle. He wants to be my uncle? Him? What's the matter with that? He's in love, Julius. He worships the very hops your aunt walks on. <laughs> and he'll make her a good husband, wouldn't you, Elliot? I would devote my entire allowance to making her happy. Oh, I see. Well, maybe I was wrong. There you are, Elliot. Julius is a good kid at heart. Yeah. Maybe we can make a deal. How about 50-50? 50-50? Julius, do you mean to say you'd take 50% of your Uncle Elliot's allowance? Wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, when you get right down to it, Elliot, it ain't a bad deal. <laughs> well, okay, Curly, if you say so. Now, how's it? 
a small retainer. Do I get it or do I go in and squeal to me Aunt Clara like the dirty little rat that I am? <laughs> Julius, we'll be relatives, you and I. Would you sully that kinship by this low display of avarice, this mean attempt at extortion? I'll take your gold out toot and your fountain pen. <laughs> Julius, how can you be so mean? I take shots. <laughs> Give him the Elk's tooth, Elliot But it was my mother She don't need it Let her gum her way <laughs> Okay Here, you little crumb Okay, Elliot Get going Clara's way Hey, I'm gonna sweep her off her feet I'll make that John Alden character Look like a bum Good luck <laughs> Oh, Harris, you're a doll A living doll <laughs> What's so funny, Mr. Harris? Hey, Julius you got to hand it to me I put it over like a dream Oh, Harris, you're a genius A living genius Hey, Mr. Harris You know how Aunt Clara's me aunt? She's married to me father's brother <laughs> Oh, Harris, you're a dead duck oh. I need to ask you about Walter Tetley yeah. Now, he was on the Gildersleeve uh, radio yes. show as yes. uh, his, uh, Gildersleeve's nephew, Leroy. Mm -hmm. And he was a wise yeah, kid on that show. But kid. on your show, he was the grocery boy. Brung the groceries. Julius Abruzio. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Brung the groceries. Brung the groceries. And it's funny. How much time did you have to devote to that radio show, generally speaking? We had a rehearsal on Friday. Mm-hmm. And then we rehearsed Sunday morning, and then we did the show Sunday afternoon. So it was basically two days. Yeah. You never saw the script before you walked in on a oh, Friday, no. probably. Never. Of course, the characters were so well-defined. Yeah, after you, a while, you, what you fell were into it. One of the highlights was your song and Phil's song, yes. too, but that's what, what we look forward to in yeah. every show, that... The, the musical breaks. And we had Walter Scharf with uh -huh. his, you know, music. He was a wonderful, wonderful arranger. From now on, Fridays is the H and H night on NBC with our show following that great guy, Bob Hope. Opposite on NBC TV, the big story pulled a rating of 29.5, while the season rating for Harrison Fay was under 3.3. With radio on its way out, NBC canceled the Phil Harrison Alice Fay show at the end of this season. The last episode aired on June 18, 1954. For the past four years, Alice and I have been on the air for RCA Victor. But tonight we are terminating that happy association with this show. So at this time, I'd like to thank RCA and everybody for being so nice to us. Our producer, our writers, the band, sound men, technicians, and all the rest of our swell gang. Good night, and we'll see you all again next fall. Good night, everybody. As this is the last show of the present series, I have a special message for Alice and Phil. The folks at RCA Victor want you to know that they've really enjoyed working with you and think you're the nicest couple they've ever met. So to Alice, Faye, and Phil Harris, it's best wishes and good luck from the folks at RCA Victor. Next week, same time, same station, RCA Victor presents Perry Como in a star-studded review featuring the greatest in radio of the last 35 years. Don't miss it. Twenty-eight means magic on the fourth by NBC.
Elliot's production. Fittingly, the final episode was called Vacationing Without Elliot. After all, Elliot Lewis was not the kind of man who had any time for a vacation. I shall never forget one that on Howard Dove show on Sam Speed that Elliot Lewis made, and Elliot was totally unaware of it, and Lorene Tuttle was totally unaware of it, which was, I'll be up to see you in the morning, and he said, I'll be up you in the morning, and of course the whole audience fell apart, and there Elliot and Lorene were absolutely serene, didn't know what everybody was falling apart about, and Bill Spear was on the floor in the control room. That's one I remember, very definitely. The subway charms us so... Broadway Is My Beat first took to the air from New York on February 27, 1949, starring Anthony Ross and directed by John Dietz. After 15 weeks, with Dragnet breaking new police procedural ground on NBC, CBS moved the show's production to Hollywood. Elliot Lewis was by then helping to edit scripts for Bill Spear on Suspense. With the urging of men like Spear and Bill Robeson, Lewis was given the chance to direct the newly migrated series. He was born in Manhattan on November 28, 1917, and knew the city well. He told Radio Life, you should hear the city constantly. Even the people in New York are noisy. Three sound men were often needed to recreate that New York flavor. I always found acting boring, because there's not enough to do. You do it, and then you're finished, and now what are you going to do, you know? They would go back to the office to do rewrites and changes and all that kind of stuff. So I would go into the booth and listen when I wasn't on in the scene, and then I'd go back to the office and they'd let me sit there with them when they were doing rewrites and cuts. So I got interested in all of it, and when I started working on suspense, Spear asked me, because I was writing suspense in addition to acting on it, I wrote some of them, and I edited a great many of them. And Spear had to go away and he asked me if I wanted to direct it. And I said, yeah, sure. So I directed one. And then the CBS people wanted to do Broadway's My Beat, which had been on in the East. They wanted to move it out here and they needed a producer-director. Mort Fine, David Friedkin were going to write it. And we cooked up the idea of scoring it with a jazz orchestra and got Sandy Courage for that. I all of a sudden was directing a show every week. Lewis's first regular turn as a director came on July 7, 1949, when the repackaged Broadway Is My Beat debuted as a summer replacement for the FBI in Peace and War. Along with David Freakin, Morton Fine would become one of Lewis's chief go-to writers, 
Broadway is my beat is the first series you wrote regularly. Was it your idea or your and David's no, idea? No, as a matter of fact, it had been done before David and I got hold of it. It was done out in New York. And the Mavens in New York felt that whoever was writing it in New York was not capturing the flavor of New York, so they brought it to Hollywood, <laughs> where two other writers caught the flavor, allegedly, of New York by so, sitting down in Hollywood and writing. Larry Thor would star as Danny Clover. Larry Thor, marvelous man. We were good buddies. And a music anecdote about Larry, which is revealing us to the kind of pixie character he was in real life. He wanted to know what time it was. So he called the operator and asked her what time it was. And she wouldn't tell him. <laughs> he got back on the phone, asked for long distance. He wanted to talk person to person with his brother Magnus Thor in Reykjavik, Iceland. And he asked her what time it was there. He wanted to know whether he was calling at a proper hour. She told him. He then subtracted nine hours from that and found out what time it was in Hollywood. <laughs> Rounding out the regular cast was Charles Calvert as Tartaglia and Jack Crucian doubling as both Sergeant Mugovan and Dr. Sinsky. My start was at CBS Radio here in Hollywood, doing a sustaining show, we used to call those. It meant you didn't get paid. That's non-sponsored, right. right? Right. Non-sponsored. Yeah. It also meant you didn't get paid in those days. Oh, really? $3? No. 1938. Okay. I got gore. And, <laughs> <laughs> and it was 13 weeks, a wonderful experience, because I got to play a different foreign character every week. And at the age of 16, that was pretty exciting. How about me. that? That's right. This kid here, are you kidding? She was a baby. Yeah. I was at least, I was a graduate of high school. What can I say about Jack? He always played two parts on Broadway's Might Be. One of Dr. Sinsky, character, who was the medical doctor for the police department. And whoever else was needed as a character within the play. But he always doubled. Broadway's My Beat featured some of the best Hollywood radio talent, like Barney Phillips, Virginia Gregg, Tony Barrett, Herb Butterfield, Betty Lou Gerson, Hi Averback, Kathy Lewis, Harry Bartell, Lawrence Dobkin, Mary Jane Croft, and Herb Vigrant. Although no sponsorship was forthcoming, CBS Brass was impressed with Elliot Lewis's capabilities. By September of 1953, Broadway Is My Beat was airing on Saturday evenings at 8 p.m. Broadway's My Beat. From Times Square to Columbus Circle, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway's My Beat, with Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. When it's September and the summer sighs away, Broadway is festooned with the colors of fall. 
The pastels of the cotton dresses mix sadly with the brown and gray of the flannel. And here and there, Broadway's shapely foliage turns to plaid. It's the time of the quickened step and the crumpled travel folder and coney-dyed beaver. And the September song is a deep-throated sound, the mob voice, the hay fever, and the oysters being torn from the half-shell. Another season, kid. One more three-month span to get where you're going. And the autumn days have their six o'clock in the morning time, the just beginning another day time. It was a street where Broadway turns a corner into the 40s, where I was, and Detective Mugovan, and a woman. She's in here, Danny, this car. Right there on the floor in front. Well, who is she? Well, I don't know, no identification, no handbag. Just this. Hmm? Car registered to Edward Bishop, 1110 160th. Uh-huh. Slippers in the glove compartment. Who found her? Officer Kaplan. Tagged it late last night for traffic violation parking. Five o'clock when he was going off duty, he noticed the car still wasn't moved. Opened it, looked. Found her under that blanket. I'd say she was about 27, huh? Shot once in the back. From up close. Yeah. Death probably instantaneous. Um... Here they are, Danny. In the front of the car, Doc. Hey, you're a new Doc, aren't you? Uh, don't move her, Doctor. Wait for the photographers. But don't just stand there, Doc. You gotta... You'll get used to it, kid. This kind of thing happens a lot. And the cluster of the walkers to work, the people of the subway, glad for the delay of the dead woman, the dead woman who lies at the beginning of another day, Stops it for a time, holds it, the desolate pause, the time for turning back. But the hungry day will not wait. Subways are empty and must be filled. The clever machines in the offices long for the fluttering caress of quick fingers. Can't stop for the dead kid, a buck has to be made. Give someone else your place in line. And in the corridor of the address on the registration slip... A woman in a raveled coat sweater sweeps away the night litter and autumn mists, gathers them on a dustpan, throws them into the street. You ask for Edward Bishop, and she shrugs you to a scarred door at the end of the hall, watches you as you knock, waits with you for the door to open. You're an early bird, mister. Police. Huh? Oh, my. The woman drops her broom, scurries away to tell her friends and neighbors. Early bird out to catch a worm, huh, mister? Not me, not for something I've done. I never do anything bad. You, Edward Bishop? Oh, not me. Mr. Bishop's my roomie. Uh, he gone and done something naughty? Come in, mister, and tell me all about it. Where is he? Oh, out frying his nightly kettle of fish, I presume. His bed ain't been selected. No? Huh? Oh, oh my, that, that hollow you see in the bedclothes is where I tried it. Uh, I'm an experimenter. Long as he wasn't in it, I thought my roomie's bed might be better than my own. It wasn't. Mr. Bishop's gone and done something naughty, huh? Do you know where he is? I want to tell you something about Mr. Bishop, my roomie. He's a tight-lipped man. Rock face, I call him when he ain't looking. That's because he never whispers a secret to me or shares a Coke when I offer him part of mine. He just lets me dab his hanky with cologne sometimes when he's going out for a heavy evening. He had a lot of them, evenings like that? Well, for a man who has to shave twice a day, he has more than his share. You wouldn't know with whom. Oh, I might. But first you tell me what my roomie did to you. Maybe you'd find it cozier down at headquarters. Maybe that Japanese kimono you wear makes it... You're getting rough. Hello there, mister. I'll tell you what I know, then you tell me what you know, huh? 
My roomie's been squiring a lady by the name of Anna Compton. You know her? Oh, just to talk to on the phone. The lovely voice. Haunts you. When did you talk to her last? Oh, two or three days ago. I'll tell you just how it was. She kept calling here evenings, asking my roomie to call her back. Uh, just leave her name. Anna Compton. <laughs> my roomie squiring a married lady. Bishop never shared anything with you, and still I'll you... tell you about that, too. Her, her haunting voice made me nervous. I told you I'm an experimenter. So one day I sat down with the phone book and called every Compton there is. Then a man answered and said his wife Anna wasn't home. Who was calling? Of <laughs> course I hung up. Then you know her address. In the New Rochelle phone book for everyone's eyes to see. Now it's your turn. What did Mr. Bishop do? A woman was found murdered in his car. My, oh my. That's as naughty as you can get, ain't it? Mr. Blackburn said that. Then Mr. Blackburn reached over to my lapel, pinched off a piece hanging from the buttonhole, and dangled it accusingly under my nose. This is the way I left Mr. Blackburn. Then back to headquarters, issue an all-points bulletin for Edward Bishop. Then down one flight to the photo lab, be handed a picture. Tuck it in the black notebook where you've jotted the name of Leo Compton and his address in New Rochelle. Then the ride there to the community where the houses have the built-in attitude that violent death never visits here. In the next street, maybe it happens, or to a friend of a friend, but it never happens here. Anna? Anna, is that you? Lost your key? Anna, where have you been? Is your name Compton? Leo Compton, that's right. I'm from the police. My name is Danny Clover. Oh, yeah? Uh... Mind if I come in? Well, I guess so. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute there. Yeah? Police! Mr. Compton... It's about Anna. It's about Anna, isn't it? What's happened to her? Listen to me, Mr. Compton. All right, all right. I'm listening. I... Is Anna your wife? Yes, yes, yes. This, uh, this woman, this picture I have here... Yes, that's Anna. Yeah. How did you get that? How did you get Anna's picture? I wish I knew some way to say this. Anna's dead. We found her this morning. She'd been shot. Oh. She... Her body's at the morgue. Anna... I've got to ask you... I know, I know. She didn't come home last night, Mr. Compton. No, no, you're wrong. She came home. Anna came home to me. It, It was my fault, really. I sent her away. I told her I didn't care. And the things I said to her, the names... Suppose the last words you ever said to your wife were names like that. What happened last night, Mr. Compton? She came home. It was about seven yesterday evening. And she had the bracelet on. She was wearing a bracelet when we found her. She had the bracelet on. And I asked her where she got such an expensive bracelet to wear. And she said she got a bargain. A bargain. What do you mean? From her boyfriend. Oh, she told me. Anna told me all right. And listen, listen, you know what I did? I called him up. I'm not narrow-minded. Things can happen just because it's your wife doesn't mean it can't happen. I called her boyfriend up, and I told him to come over. I'd pay him for the bracelet. Did he come over? Oh, he came over. Anna was stunned all right. And I wrote a check for the bracelet, $200. Don't you think Anna wasn't stunned? Mr. Compton... Don't you know what she did? She left with him anyhow. Bracelet, check, she, and him... 
And that's when I what said, was the man's up. name? Bishop, Edward Bishop. He's an auctioneer for the Hunter Galleries. Oh, there's something else. Yes? I'll call Fran. I'll take her out of that place where she is. Come in off the Avenue of the Americas, mister. Behind these dirty shop windows, there are bargains. Edward Bishop work here? He did, till he killed himself a woman, ran up a parking ticket. You know all that for sure. I know Eddie, he works for me. The pitchman to end all pitchmen. The spiel that kills, that's uh, Eddie Bishop. He talking to buying something you don't like, mister? You said he killed her. Why? You're a cop, aren't you? Come inside, I'll brew you something warm. It gets cold for everybody on the avenue. No, well, uh, leave the door open. A looker might want to come in to browse. That's how it is in the world. Lookers, browsers, handlers, then walk out. Just like my Eddie. You want a sip of the warm brew? Why did you say he killed her? It's in Eddie to do a thing like that. It's what's about him that fascinates a girl. That and the clever way he handles an auctioneer's hammer. I could show you a three-time bruise. Three times in your soul on a man like Eddie. You read in the papers a woman is found dead in Bishop's car and that makes you know he's a murderer. That and the way he spoke my name sometimes after we closed up the shop. Zoe, he'd say to me. Zoe killed a long day for me. You don't argue with a man like Eddie when he talks like that. You knew Mrs. Compton? When the summer began to fade, Eddie started talking to me about her. How she looked when she walked in one day to bid on an object of art. Then how she looked over a cocktail at a corner bar. And then how it was with the lights of Coney on her face and in Eddie's car on the long way to New Rochelle. All this my auctioneer told me. That's how I know the dead Mrs. Compton. I'm glad for her. You never saw her with him? It was last night. I watched from behind the counter. I saw her shove her wrist at Eddie. Eddie put a bracelet on it, one he'd bought from stock. I thought it was for me. Right in front of me, he did it. If it was like that for them, why would he kill her? Who knows? Maybe she rubbed him the wrong way. Maybe she asked him for it. Eddie was a man to oblige a lady. All right. Thank you. Uh, do something for me, mister. What? You find Eddie Bishop, give him my message. Tell him I want an invite to his execution. It's been a dull season. Danny? Over here in the squad car. You got something, Muggerman? Well, maybe, maybe not. Guy was found dead in the building excavation over on 3rd. Nobody wants to touch him. Yeah, let's go. Uh, drive down the ramp, Muggerman. Yeah. Well, this sidewalk superintendent's really got something to stare at now. 
Yeah. Hey, what happened, mister? Him. Him and a scoop happened. Half hour ago, I decided to scratch this ground. First scoop full of shovel come up with was him. Hey, let's get it down, huh? Sure. Yeah, real good. I'll take a look, huh? Shot, Danny. Now, here's a wallet. Yeah, look at this. Check for $200 signed by Leo Compton. Uh-huh. Pay to the order of Edward Bishop. Edward Bishop? He's the man we figured murdered Anna Compton. Yeah, the man we figured murdered Anna Compton. What? What'd you say, Danny? Nothing. I didn't say anything at all. This episode featured Howard McNear, Forrest Lewis, and Lou Krugman. You are listening to Broadway's My Beat, written by Morton Fine and David Friedkin, and starring Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover. The training area in those days of radio... Because he had the opportunity of doing as many shows as we did, that itself was a training, and that goes back when you'd start doing 40, 45 shows a week. And actually, I remember one show called 7 O'Clock Final, and they would be writing the show while you were on the air, and the scripts would be coming in page by page. You play this, you play this German character, uh, Spanish, French. September morn dips a dainty toe into a Broadway billboard and unshivering gazes down upon a street that only yesterday was choked with summer. But the refuse is there, where summer has passed and left pieces of itself, in the scratch and warp of summertime blues still screeching out of the loudspeakers. The sunny mannequins, wax slightly melted, waiting in shop windows to be replaced by the fall and winter models. The faint odors of the sun-warmed perfume, the souvenir of the golden girl who walked right past you, turned a corner, vanished into a place where summer never dies. A place not open to you, kid. Only autumn's ahead of you, kid. Start using it. It's already given you two murders. A woman in the front seat of a car, a man scooped out of the earth on the teeth of a steam shovel. What more can you ask? September's showering her gifts on you, kid. Take them. They're all yours. And at headquarters, Sergeant Tataglia brings you your share of them. Holds them from you with a smile that shows he slept well last night. The accumulated datums on the murders, Danny. In these papers, I tease before you. And have a good night, Gino. No complaints come to mind, Danny. The evening was a fulsome one. Father McCleary came to call. A pleasant time was had by all, as is our usual procedure. Yeah, Father McCleary's a fine man. Salt of the earth. I asked Mrs. T to break open a bottle of Mogan Dovered wine. He don't even blink an eye. Sips with you, talks with you, brings presents for the Tartaglia brood. This is a man who also brings you the gift of restful sleep. Remember me to him, Gino. Roger, Wilco. Now to the papers I am about to bestow upon you. In them you will find a report from Technical, to wit. The bullets that killed Mrs. Compton and Mr. Bishop, Technical States, came from the same gun. Mm -hmm. Markings are identical. The rundown on the past histories of Mrs. Compton and Mr. Bishop is contained in reports from interested neighbors and relatives gathered by... You'll spare me a moment, Mr. Clover. Look, you. Standard operating procedure is to knock when one desires a moment of Danny Come Clover's... in, Mr. Compton. I've come to demand something, Mr. Clover. And 
I intend to. Not leaving here until you give it to me. What would that be? Anna's bracelet. The one that... Well, everyone's dead. It belongs to me. Because you gave Bishop a $200 check for it? I stopped payment on my check. After all that, that Mr. Bishop did give it to Anna. I needn't have made that stupid gesture. And now she's dead. And he's dead. Yes, your wife is dead. You loved her, you told me. The bracelet's mine. You want to quibble about it? Have me spend money on lawyers? You're right, Mr. Compton. It's yours. Take it. We've no more use for it. We have photographs. You understand. It's not the money. It's only that if it once belonged to her, it now belongs to me. It's a kind of... Remembrance uh, of the dead? Well, I'm not going to think about it. I have enough trouble living in an empty house with no one to scrimp and save all my life, share it with Mrs. Compton. And the cost of things, Mr. Clover, it's outrageous food, furniture, clothes, and transportation. You know what cab fare cost me from New Rochelle? Five sixty. It's outrageous. You could have come in another way. Oh, yes, and be mocked at, pointed to, as the husband of a murdered woman. They put my picture in the paper, you know, and that makes me a curiosity, a freak. You didn't tell me when I last saw you, Mr. Compton. What did you do after your wife left you with Bishop? What's that? I said, what did you do? Go anywhere, talk to well, anyone? Well, of course I talked to someone. A man's wife walks out on him when he's given her all this. Who? Mervyn Mago. He's an old friend from boyhood. I go to him whenever I'm in trouble. He's a professional helper. He's in that business. He makes money by helping people? He runs a mission on East 40th. You'll like him, I think. Well, thank you, Mr. Clover. You were easier to deal with than I thought. Danny, a man's wife is murdered and he comes back for... Danny, you think... It's something to think about, huh, Gino? It was something to think about. Consider a man whose wife had been murdered. Consider, in space of 24 hours, his tears had dried, the shock of death had dwindled into something much more negotiable. A $200 bracelet, for example. The grief tempered by the high cost of taxi cab fares. Leo Compton had motive enough to commit two murders. His wife because she had run out on him, Edward Bishop because he had run with her. Motive, certainly. So check on his story. Item. He was a man who needed companionship at the time of stress. Specifically, he liked to talk to a man who ran a mission. Go to the man who ran a mission and ask questions. Glad you came to see me, Mr. Clover. I really am. So am I, Mr. Mago. Now, a dozen checkerboards and a few back-issue magazines. You'll admit I do the best I can. Then there's always the coffee and donuts. The boys expect them. Standard fare for places like this. Sure. Now... Uh... Once I got a bright idea. Put in a ping-pong table. Build it myself. You know, ping-pong for the boys. A little physical exercise. What happened? The boys didn't understand about ping-pong. Took down the net. Made a backstop out of the old magazines. Well, I confiscated the dice. <laughs> Loaded. How often does Leo Compton come down here? Sometimes often. Sometimes not for months at a time. Whenever Leo feels the need. Need of what? Someone to talk to. But why do you? Because he doesn't have to explain himself to me. The embarrassment of bearing himself to someone doesn't have to be done. I know him, Mr. Clover. I know him well. That's what I want you to tell me about, Mr. Mago. I guess it was 20 years ago I met Leo... We went to the same summer camp in the Catskills, a charity camp. I was his big brother assigned by the counselor. You know, the older camper. I showed him how to put a French tuck in a bed. His swimming buddy, you know? Uh-huh. And since then, when, whenever he got into with trouble... With himself or with the world, he came to me. 
I like to think I'm necessary to Leo. I can understand. Leo is a product, Mr. Clover. The making of a living, the background of poverty. Even now, now that he's fairly well-to-do, it still eats him. What does? Even at camp, the pattern was there. He would organize little card games after lights out, wouldn't play himself, but took a cut from every pot. That sort of thing all his life. I see. Tell me something else. When his wife ran out on him, he came down here to talk to you. What did he say? Not a whole lot. He told me the story. I listened. That's just about all he wanted down here. He told you and then he went home, is that it? Not right away. He told me, and then the boys started to straggle in for their coffee and donuts. He joined them. He always does. He ate four of those donuts, Mr. Clover. I have always felt that everybody in the entertainment business should know enough about every part of the entertainment business so that they respect what the other people are doing. Any actor who comes in and mutters about a script should be sat in front of a typewriter and put a piece of yellow paper in the typewriter and say, fade in, interior Lucy's living room day. She comes down the stairs, her hair and curls. Go. Give me the other 32 pages, you know, and then argue about is this a good script or a bad script. And conversely, the writer who is, oh, these lines are so precious, should be made to stand in front of an audience and read aloud a bad joke and look like a fool. As the actor does while the guy, you look into the wings and the writer just went, oh, well. <laughs> well, they go, right on, baby. You're standing there with mud on your face. You know, you just made one of those big things and nothing happened. And the writer's going, oh. Oh, sure, Mugovan. What is it? Why don't you talk to a man? Yeah, come on, Mr. Scott. This is Mr. Scott, Danny. Mr. Scott, Lieutenant Clover. I do. Uh, oh, sit down, Mr. Scott. Sure, right there. It'll be fine. Uh, go ahead, Mr. Scott. Give the lieutenant the bracelet. Thank you. I uh, thought it was the right thing to do, Lieutenant Clover. I saw the man's picture in the paper mixed up in a murder and... Then that he should all of a sudden come to me, come up to me of all yeah, people, and out of, out of the side of his mouth offer to Where sell Where did you me. get this bracelet, Mr. Scott? I told you, didn't I? Oh, I'm sorry. Would you mind telling me again? Mm. Uh, go ahead, Mr. Scott. Please do. Well, here I was walking toward the subway entrance on 59th Street, and he come up to me. Who did? The man whose picture was in the paper about his wife's being slain, that's who. He means Leo Compton. I mean Leo Compton. He plucked my sleeve. He offered to sell me this bracelet. He said he was making deliveries for a jewelry concern and the bracelet was left over and nobody seemed to know where it come from. Uh-huh. Uh, how much did you pay for it, Mr. Scott? Ridiculous price. He asked $5.60 for it and that's what I give him. You might as well know, too, that he kept turning his face for me, but I certainly recognized him. That's why I've come here. Uh, Mugovan, write Mr. Scott a voucher for five sixty, And uh, thank you very much, Mr. Scott. <laughs> Call me in, Danny, and you ask me to step over into a department that's not strictly mine. And why don't you wait for the reports from technical? Huh? All I want is an opinion, Dr. Sinsky. Whose toes would you step on if you give me that? Gordon of technical. <laughs> All right, so he deserves a toe smash he wants in a while. What do you want of me, Danny? 
You examined Mrs. Compton. The bullet wound, yeah. the, the type of wound where it was in her back, is it one that would bleed freely? Oh, yes, Danny, but you know these things as well as I. Why I do you I just got ask? these photographs. Uh-huh. Hey, look at them. The inside of the car where Mrs. Compton was found. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Sinsky? You know as well as I Tell me anyway. I I want to be sure. It is obvious that the loss of blood in the car was slight, which makes it to me apparent that the woman was not shot in the car but somewhere else and then put into the car and... uh, I'm a doctor, Danny, not a... A detective? I didn't mean it to sound like that. Yeah, I know. Thanks for the opinion, Dr. Sinsky. It's all around in the backyard. Go through the gate. Well, I hope you appreciate me creating all this stuff for you. Why, it's you, Mr. Clover. Moving day, Mr. Compton? Huh? Oh, no, no, no. My wife's things. It's hard to live with. I see. Giving them away, huh? Well, not exactly. Selling them? I saw an ad in the paper where they buy merchandise like... Well, yes, yes, I'm selling Anna's clothes. Why? How much are you getting for them? Why? I'm curious. Why? Five sixty for a bracelet worth two hundred. A man like you to do that strange. How do you know about the bracelet? The man you sold it to got scared. The bracelet was mine to sell. Why should he get scared? That's not the point, Mr. Compton. The point is why you should sell such a valuable bracelet for so little. You could have gotten more. I got what I wanted. Yeah, I guess you did. You broke even. Bishop gave your wife the bracelet, so legally it's yours. But you'd paid him for it. I told you that. You gave him the check so we'd find it on him. So your story of what happened the night of your wife's death would hold up. What's that? But with Bishop dead, and the bracelet legally yours anyhow, why should you be liable for the check... His estate would have the check cashed. Well, that's right, I did. I, I gave him a check for Stop it. Stop payment on it, too. That's right. Why should I spend money I don't have to? Sure. You see what I mean, don't you? Sure. You know, you're a funny man, Mr. Compton. Well, I guess people say that about me. I don't care. You're so careful with money, and you're an honest man. But you couldn't stand having that bracelet around. It was a symbol of what your wife did to you. So you sold it for the cost of your cab fare, even all round. Oh, <laughs> That's how much you know. I lost plenty. I lost my wife. You're a funny man. I told you my wife had a boyfriend. And I was ready to forgive her. She walked out of me anyhow. Oh, she would have come back. Don't you worry about it. You'd already killed her when you called Bishop. I killed... I told you Yeah, yeah, I know. I told you how it was. I said that... Then when Bishop arrived, you killed him too. Wrote out a check and stuck it in his pocket. Put your wife and Bishop in Bishop's car as if she'd left with him. She did, I told... Listen at all. I could call technical. They'd find blood in your house, no matter how hard you scrubbed. You don't understand anything. I worked hard all my life. I put my own price on things. My wife belonged to me. She was mine. And nobody gets her. Not for a $200 bracelet, they don't. What do you think I am, anyhow? Let's go. For a bracelet? What good is that? What did she need that for? As if it were something. I'm a hard worker. Things I own didn't come easy. What's going to happen to them now? Mr. Clover, you better get in touch with Mr. Mago. He'll know how to advise me. Well, he's just like a big brother to me. (laughs) 
It's the journey to the end of all the other streets in the world, this Broadway. You turn a corner and you're there. Walk it slowly. Lean your heart against it. Shop for the kicks, the bargains, the heartbreak. Until it all explodes in your face. It's Broadway, the gaudiest, the most violent, the lonesomest mile in the world. Broadway, my beat. Broadway's My Beat stars Larry Thor as Detective Danny Clover with Charles Calvert as Tartaglia and Jack Crucian as Mugovan. I was challenged once by Bill Robeson, who is, you know, one of our finest radio directors ever, producer, director, and a fine writer as well. But he had interviewed me and said, what is this now that you double? And I said, oh, yeah, I can do, you know, a couple of voices. He says, can you talk to yourself? And I said, I guess, why not? Well, he brought me on a show with Elliot Lewis and had me play five parts. And he kept waiting for me to complain, and I never said a word. I just marked all the parts. And a couple of them were just one-liners. But still, one time I had three characters on the same page all talking to themselves, me. <laughs> that's not easy. No, we got off the air, and he said... I guess you can double. <laughs> Just like that. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. And then during the actual broadcast, you're there. Right. As a rule. Just, you know, the word fell. Fell means uh, you get a marvelous burbling feeling in your gut, and there are your words going over the air, coast mm -hmm. to coast. And it was a marvelous feeling. You sat down Monday and wrote the words, and Saturday, you're the word, coast to coast. Is there a similar feeling for uh, television work? Yeah, but television was always pressure. And it wasn't nearly as much fun. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Well, the only time I did suspense was when Elliot Lewis was doing it, because 
Bill Spear was really the director, and Bill Spear said he didn't speak to actors that he didn't know, and I was one of the ones he didn't know, so there was no chance. And when Dan told me that he had a couple of suspenses that I was on, I said, I, I think you're mistaken, because I don't recall ever working it. And then when I got the tape, I played it, and they were both directed by Elliot Lewis, so I figured out either he'd, Bill Spear had gone on vacation or he'd left the show, but... After Elliot Lewis's success at the helm of Broadway Is My Beat was readily apparent, William Spear decided to step down from suspense. In June of 1950, Lewis was named producer and director, taking over for Spear and Norman MacDonald. His first episode at the helm was August 31st, 1950. To me, acting is kind of dull, and so I wanted to go and do the other things. And Bill Spear, who was producing and directing suspense and was, to my mind, probably the greatest of... I wrote scripts for him, and then he had me editing scripts all this while I was acting. And then uh, we got very close. We had a good relationship. And he wasn't well for a while, and he asked if I would produce and direct suspense for him. And I did some. Then he had to go to Europe to do a picture with June and the Masons, James and Pamela, who married at that time. And Pamela had written a book, done the adaptation, and James and June were going to co-star, and Bill was going to produce and direct. And that meant that he'd have to give up suspense. And he, in a very dramatic scene, handed me the torch and said, you go do this, I'm going to go do pictures. And I said, fine, off you go. And he said, and also take care of Howard and Sam Spade for me while I'm gone. Program sponsor Autolite preferred to keep its commercials humorous, feeling that the change of pace shocked the audience to attention. Each 30-minute episode required over 500 total hours of work from 50 people. Writers spent 80 hours on each story, with Lewis spending 10 hours reviewing and editing. Sound technicians spent 20 weekly hours finding and rehearsing their effects. With Lewis at the helm, Suspense was able to stave off some of the decline in ratings other shows succumbed to. This was partly due to his partnership with Morton Fine and David Freakin. Now, Elliot Lewis, you said towards the end, the three of you could do no wrong. What are some of those shows that you did no wrong for? including suspense, of course. We did, well, I want to talk about that for a minute, because sure. we did musicals on suspense. Yes, you did. Did you write the Frankie and Johnny? Did indeed. With Dennis Shore? I did indeed. Okay. And then we did Black is the Color mm-hmm. with Jeff Chandler. We did several of those, and we didn't ask anybody's permission. We just did it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what song shall we do, fellas? Uh-huh. And we'd pick a song, and we'd write a suspense. Did you border on getting into some trouble over some of those? In 1953, the series, now airing on Mondays at 8 p.m., was still heard by roughly 12.5 million people each week. On September 21, 1953, Suspense presented The Empty Chair, guest starring Agnes Moorhead. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Miss Agnes Moorhead in tonight's presentation of Suspense. 
Tonight, Autolite salutes the American Automobile Association and its traffic safety program as we present a dramatic report called The Empty Chair. Our star, the First Lady of Suspense, Miss Agnes Moorhead. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for the worldwide Autolite family. Since 1922, the American Automobile Association, with the cooperation of 276 affiliated clubs, has been active in helping schools develop educational programs designed to protect children on their way to and from school and to make them careful drivers upon graduation. Traffic safety is, as you know, everyone's business. So our story tonight will dramatize how we all can help ourselves and our children by driving carefully and by cooperating with traffic safety instructions. Later in the program, we will hear from Mr. Royce G. Martin, chairman of the board and president of the Electric Autolite Company, and Mr. Ralph Thomas, president of the American Automobile Association. And now, Autolite presents transcribed The Empty Chair, starring Miss Agnes Moorhead, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. Now, are we all settled down? That's good. Miss Barbara Warner. You may call me Miss Barbara or Miss Warner, either one, which gives you young ladies and gentlemen at least two choices when you wish to attract my attention so that there'll be no need to yell out, Hey, teacher! (laughs) Besides, 10B3. 10B3 at your homeroom, high school at last. And today's the first day. Young ladies and gentlemen, truly, and today's the day it really starts. So now let's get to know each other, shall we? All of you will get up and go to the back of the room, please. I have your study cards here, and I've arranged them alphabetically. We'll start with the first row and the first seat, and as I call your names, you'll be seated. Sidney Aronson, Mary Avanti, uh, right in back of Sidney. Yes, that's right. David Coop, uh, uh, George Darley, just a minute, George. Leave an empty seat. Jessica Bromley, and then skip one, and then you, George. An empty seat for David Cooper. For now. (laughs) How'd you like that, Miss Warner? Bobby. What? Uh, Nothing. I I didn't say anything. Don't worry about a thing, Miss Warner. Home. And how'd you like your ride? Well, I'm glad it's over. And I was just getting a compliment ready for you. Oh, you were? I've never had a teacher in my car before. Mm, And? I wanted to see how one of them would react to going 65 miles an hour. Nearly 70, Bobby. And in a residential section, too. Just for the last six blocks, Miss Warner. I was going to say how I was surprised you didn't scream at me or get hysterical. (laughs) I was going to say I'm glad, since you're that kind of person, I'm glad you're going to board with my mother and me. Now you're sorry about the whole thing. Oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. I'm a good driver, Miss Warner. Yes, I'm sure you are. And this is a good car. Yes, it's, it's beautiful. You mean it? Yes, of course I do, Bobby. But what about school, the traffic classes, and the sessions on safety? What about them? Well, didn't they impress you? 
Most of the boys and girls learned to drive through school classes, didn't you? Yes, ma'am. And reaction times, you were taught about those and how no one's reaction time is really fast enough to cope with an emergency at high speed. You drive as if you'd forgot all about that as soon as you walked out of class. And you sound like a... Bobby! Miss Warner! Oh, that's my mother. Well, what are you two out here for? Come on in. I've got tea made. Oh, I'm so glad you're here, Miss Warner. I I wasn't sure when you'd arrive. Mrs. Morrison, mother of Bobby, a woman in her 40s perhaps or younger, in a plain cotton house dress that hung loosely about her and her hands were almost delicate and quite thin and worn. And her fingers quickly, nervously pushed strands of graying hair tied against her temples and on her face the trace, and not yet deep, of lines of strain. Now, don't let Miss Warner carry your bag herself, Bobby. You take it. Now, take it to her room. Bobby... And then her touch on my arm, and Mrs. Morrison led me into her house, into her home, and showed me the living room, neat, sparingly furnished, and said that I was welcome to use it any evening for my guests if I just let her know beforehand. She would arrange to go to a movie or call on a neighbor, just let her know beforehand. And the kitchen, and where she kept the toaster, and the coffee canister, and the sugar, and the other things I'd need for breakfast or a snack, whenever I pleased. She didn't mind a bit. And then my room... I, uh, I had Bobby fix up the little radio on your bed table. I, I thought it might be nice. A pleasant room. A summer blanket neatly folded at the foot of the bed. A window open to a small wire-fenced vegetable garden. A desk, a chair, a pleasant room. Unpack now and change and lie down and rest. Listen to the radio. And doze. Lay off me, Ma. Leave me alone. Just lay off me. Do you hear? And waken then to summer evening and to something more harsh. I'm fed up, Ma. Fed up. Do I reach you, Ma? Is it getting through to you? Listen to me, Bobby. I've had it listening to you, Ma. Bobby, she'll hear you. Miss Warner will hear you. Let her hear. You hear me, Miss Warner? You listening real good? Hey, Warner, wake up. Hit the deck. Wake up and get an earful. All right. We'll do that, Bobby. We'll let Miss Warner listen so you won't have to yell at her. Miss Warner? Miss Warner? Yes? Would you come out, please? I want you to... Would you please? Yes, Mrs. Martin. Good evening, Bobby. You flip or something, Ma? My son was yelling and screaming at his mother and then at you. And he said he didn't care if you heard. Go on, Bobby. Tell me, and tell Miss Warner how fed up you are with your mother. I told you and told you, Ma. Just lay off me. You've had experience, haven't you, Miss Warner? With boys like Bobby and, and the others he runs around with? They must confide in you and, and tell you their things that, that they won't tell their mothers. That their mothers can't possibly understand or know or share. You're younger and more experienced. And they must. Bobby? You're getting it blow by blow, Miss Warner. You stick with Ma and me and you'll get it every night on the night. Where are you going tonight, Bobby? Who'll you be with tonight, Bobby? Where'll I find you if I need you, Bobby? If you need me, Bobby? (laughs) Look, I'm 17. 
And there's a joint that's got a jukebox in it. And girls with pockets full of dimes. And me, I got a car. I got a car. Hot. Real hot. You and the high school teacher here, Ma, you, you put your heads together. And maybe it'll come out mathematical where your baby boy is nice. Oh, I... I'm... I'm sorry, Miss Warner. Forgive us, please. Oh, don't mention it. He's... No, I... I want to tell you about my boy. He... He's had no father since he was eight. When he was 13, Bobby got some work around the garage after school. It helped. It, it helped out a lot. And I was glad to see it. He, he loved working around motors. And, well, you saw that car he built. A, a boy 17 to have built such a car. Mrs. Morrison. Yes? Has Bobby ever told you about Mr. Douglas? Uh, I don't think so. He's a teacher at our school, a manual arts teacher. Uh, no. He no. takes special interest in boys like Bobby. He's also our driver education teacher, we call him. He works with the boys and girls, and the local automobile club helps him. Sometimes I... I, I just think my, my son is wild, that's all. Well, that's just what I'm telling you. Mr. Douglas teaches safety and sanity in driving. He tries to tell the young Mrs. people... Mrs. Morrison! Hey, Mrs. Morrison! Oh, oh, hello, David. Come in. Oh, David, uh, this is Miss Warner. She teaches at the high school where you're going to go this year. Uh, Miss Warner, this is David Cooper, a neighbor boy. Hi, Miss Warner. Hello, David. I'm glad to know you. Me too. Where's Bobby, Mrs. Morrison? He's not here, David. Oh, out in the garage, huh? Working on that super neat job of his, I'll bet. I, I don't think so. Well, where'd he go, Mrs. Morrison? I don't know. He promised me. He promised me for sure this time. Promised you what, David? Well, he said next time he was in a race, I could ride with him. And I know there's one tonight. And he welshes out on me. But, well, he's the best, Mrs. Morrison. Real absolute best. Well, he's got all those other how guys... How old are you, it. David? Huh? I asked how old you were. Thirteen. What's that got to do with it? Bobby promised me. He said I was old enough now for him to break me in. Well, good night, Mrs. Morrison. Miss Warner. David's our neighbor, boy. Not many years ago, I, I used to babysit for his mother. Read to him, he and Bobby. Could I, I fix you something to eat, Miss Warner? Featured in the episode's cast as Bobby was radio and TV legend Sam Edwards. He was known, thanks to Meet Corliss Archer, for playing teenage boys, even though in 1953 he was already 38 years old. Don't you think that that really brought it, you into it, your it, own? It probably <laughs> did, because when I got back from the service, I thought, oh boy, I'll never be able to get started again. You no. know, I, I felt like my career was behind me. Jack insisted, my brother, he'd heard about this audition for Corliss. And I said, oh, I can't play a teenager, and for heaven's sakes, I've been in the army, you know, and I, I, my attitude is completely different. And he said, go down and do it. He says, I said, I can't. I, he, so he called up Jimmy Saffier and made an appointment for me to go down there. And I had known Janet, and I was, you know, delighted to see her again, and I was, but I didn't think I had a chance to. But you're, you but you were got great. To, you I got would have won the audition. Yeah. <laughs> 
Paula Winslow played the mother. We would support the stars. Mm -hmm. If they would have, for instance, if Betty Davis did Dark Victory, mm -hmm. I did the part that Geraldine Fitzgerald did in the picture, you know, the second yeah. uh -huh. And then sometimes we'd do a lead opposite one of the stars. Mm -hmm. And here, this picture was taken at Lake Louise, too. You can hardly tell I'm the one in the middle, can you? The way Miss Reba and I dressed up there. Oh, it must have been very expensive. Oh, and restful. I got a lot of reading done, and I've been promising myself to get... Oh, sit still, Mrs. Morrison. I'll get it. Good evening. Good evening. Does this young man belong here? Yes, he does, officer. Uh, please come in. Oh, who is it? Now, don't get excited, Mom. Oh, I said don't get excited. Are you, Mrs. Morrison? Oh, yes, yes. I'm Officer Cleaver. The only reason your son isn't in juvenile court right now is because, as far as I know, it's the first time he's pulled a trick like he did tonight. Well, what are you talking about? In his car. Him and another one, speeding down Presbury Street. Your son headed north and the other one south, headed toward each other. Front wheels on the white dividing line to see who'd give way. Going over 70 miles an hour. Oh, Bobby. Who the other kid was, I don't know, ma'am. I can only catch one of them. Him. Autolite is bringing you Miss Agnes Moorhead in The Empty Chair. Tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. We'll continue with suspense in a moment. Now, here is Mr. Royce G. Martin, chairman of the board and president of the Electric Autolite Company, to introduce a special guest. Tonight, the worldwide Autolite family is privileged to salute the American Automobile Association and its traffic safety program. To tell us how this practical safety program is helping to reduce traffic accidents by teaching future drivers how to be careful drivers. Here is the president of the American Automobile Association, Mr. Ralph Thomas. Thank you, Mr. Martin. We of the American Automobile Association are grateful for the interest shown in our work by the Autolite family, as evidenced by this program tonight. The problem presented in this dramatization is, unfortunately, a very real one and a very common one. However, cooperating with school and community authorities, we are engaged in stimulating and aiding an active educational program to teach our young drivers and pedestrians safety first. This year alone, 3A materials and services are being widely used in grammar and high school class instruction. Indeed, will help over 12 million students. This, of course, is important to all of us. If you have a son or a daughter in school, ask about this program. And set a good example yourself by practicing safety behind the wheel. If you are a student, take an active part in class. And when you are behind the wheel, be the best amongst the young drivers. Be a sportsman-like driver. Thank you, Mr. Thomas. And as an eight-year-old boy said when he was asked, what safety meant. Safety is thinking not to get hurt or 
to her. There's a definition we should all remember. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage Miss Agnes Moorhead in Elliot Lewis's production of The Empty Chair, a dramatic report well calculated to keep you in suspense. Friday night in a quiet room and a window that opens onto the silences of a town already asleep. Friday night and an end of summer. Last weekend before school's opening and the last book you've promised yourself to read before summer's closed. And read now to the undercurrent of voices from another room in Mrs. Morrison's home. Well, it's not that, son. It's me. I want to do my best. I try to do my best. Now, if you'd only... The night stillness... And Mrs. Morrison searched through it for the words to speak to her 17-year-old son. Saturday morning, and Mrs. Morrison has made breakfast and over coffee. Will you try and do something about my boy, Miss Warner? Maybe you could do something. Please. And dress then and go to the school. Try to save a boy. Doors open. Come on in. Oh, hello, Miss Warner. I don't want to interrupt, Mr. Douglas. I, I just... No, you're not. I'm just getting everything ready for when school opens Monday. <laughs> what are you doing here today? Anxious to get back in harness? I don't know. I, I think so. Mr. Douglas. Yes? Do you know a boy named Bobby Morrison? Oh, yes. What about Bobby? I'm boarding with him and his mother. I, I wanted I, uh, to... I, I heard the police picked him up racing last night. Yes. Some of the boys came in and told me about it. I was sorry to hear. His mother is very troubled. She asked me to help. Mm -hmm. Bobby's very bright. A real bright, intelligent boy. And sensitive. You were going to say something else, Mr. Douglas, about Bobby. He's a boy without a father. When he was eight. Bobby's a boy who's looking for something. And he finds it in speed. And in danger in ways that could kill him. We try, Miss Warner. We try real hard. We cooperate with the auto clubs. You know about the classes I give in driver instructions. Mr. Douglas... And I tell the kids, you kids drive like that, I say one out of a thousand of you'll be a corpse before the year's out. One out of 45 hurt, crippled. We tell them why traffic laws are made. For the protection and survival of the community. By actual demonstration, we show them what a tremendous force they're handling when they're behind the wheel of an automobile. We go out and demonstrate the different conditions, the distances it takes to stop a car on a dry and slippery pavements from different speeds. Well, together, we study accident reports and actual photographs of what happens when you're arrogant or careless with a car. Smashed cars from head-on collisions. Smashed people. We give them visual and muscular coordination tests so that they'll understand what speed and hundreds of horsepower can do to them. And how to face emergencies behind the wheel. We try to make sportsmen-like drivers out of them. Miss Warner. Yes? Boys like Bobby. Uh, whatever their reasons, they won't listen. Nights they gather and go out to the hub in their souped-up cars. And they dance to the jukebox. And they won't listen. The hub? A place out on State Highway 52, south side of the bridge. Used to be a kind of general store. A fountain and hamburgers. 
The kids picked it up, had Charlie Phillips, the owner, put in a jukebox and a big neon sign. They gather their nights for races, for... Will you take me there, Mr. Douglas? What? I want to see for myself. Tonight, around nine. I'm at Mrs. Morrison's on Benton, 853. Will you call for me? Why, of course. Thank you. Once Lewis took over production, Fine and Freakin became semi-regular show writers. Who were radio's best writers, from your point of view? People whose material you enjoyed listening to yourself. Well, E. Jack Newman, Tony Ellis, and John Meston. These are the only writers, well, I've known others, and there are some which would come to mind if I thought about it. But these were always in CBS, at CBS. We really never... Went down the street to NBC or ABC at all. No temptations? There's no reason no fe- for it. No feelers? No, I don't think so. There's no reason for it. Now, you weren't under contract to CBS? No, uh-uh. Just kind of a friendly agreement? Yeah. And later when I got back to the house, Mrs. Morrison said Bobby hadn't been home all day. But it wasn't unusual, she said. He'd show up for dinner, but he didn't. And Mrs. Morrison picked at her food and got up from the table too often and walked around and made excuses which could cover Bobby's not being there. A double feature Bobby had to see twice. A friend had him to dinner and Bobby forgot to call. The ordinary excuses we all make to hold back the truth for a while. And after dinner, dishes and her trying to chat brightly, but somehow... Sentences trailing off and not being finished. And glances through the window onto the night street. And the head cocked to the sound of every passing automobile. And when the doorbell rang, a mother hurrying for news of her son. Oh. And the disappointment. Please come in, Mr. Douglas. Thank you. Oh, Miss Warner. Uh, Mr. Douglas is here. And the ride down State Highway 52 south through good countryside of Sycamore and Birch, across a wooden bridge, and the intrusion now upon a time of evening quiet of a thing, a wheel, an enormous wheel of red neon, a wheel whose each spoke displaced a tube of sky when it lit, one spoke after another, and when the huge and clever wheel was finally complete, a thing happened. The word hub announced itself at the split second when the center of the wheel appeared. This is the place. Let's go inside. You and your friend can have this booth right here, Mr. Douglas. Thanks, Charlie. Oh, uh, don't go away. I want you to meet a friend of mine, Miss Warner, Charlie Phillips. How do you do, Mr. Hello. The hub belongs to Charlie. Yes, ma'am. How are things, Charlie? Last night, that kid over there, you see him? Huh? That one near the music box? Gordon Matthews? Who knows what his name is? Well, that's Gordon, all right. He was in my homeroom last year. You should have made him write a few hundred times, don't play with matches. He would like to set fire to the place last night. Why, that boy's barely 15 years old. What's he doing out here five miles outside of town, this late at night? Listen, he's got a parent or two can ask that question, not me. Oh, why don't you just tell him to go home, Charlie? Why don't you keep him out of here? For the same reason you're teaching school, to eat, to make a living. Once this was a nice place. Why, there's David, David Cooper. David? David? Oh, hello, Miss Warner. 
What are you doing here, David? David, I'm talking to you. I know you are. How did you get out here? I hitched. Mr. Douglas and I are going to take you home. I'm sorry, Miss Warner, but I... Oh, hi, Bobby. You ready, kid? What is this, Bobby? School opens Monday. Then you ask questions and ask for hands. Saturday night don't belong to you, Miss Warner. Come on, kid. Please, Miss Warner, let me go. Hey, what's the trouble? Look, uh, you'd better stay out of this, Mr. Douglas. David is going someplace with Bobby. I want to know where. Where, Bobby? All right. Outside is my car. And outside is two other cars, and the boys in them are impatient. That's how we tell each other we're impatient. You going to race, Bobby? Yeah. And down the road a few yards is a bridge. You get the picture? You're crazy. What's he going to do? Tell her. The three of them will line up abreast on the road, then they'll race to the bridge and over it. But there's only room for two cars across that bridge. That's right. One of us will have to drop back. Come on, Davy. Okay. Oh, you stay here, David. Now. Now, listen, you can get killed. Let go of me. I would if I were you, Mr. Douglas. I'd really let him go. Mr. Douglas, hey, uh, What do you want, Charlie? Uh, these kids, they turn into a wolf pack. Don't get yourself into any trouble. Why, these boys wouldn't dare to... Listen, Miss Warner. Last month, an older brother, must have been a man about 30, a very hefty fellow with muscles on his forearm. This fellow came in here and tried to pull his kid brother out of here. He landed in the hospital. Cut. There's 16 kids here, Miss Warner. But what Bobby is going to do, that, that, that race over the bridge with David, both of them can ah, be killed. the way they handle those cars, you don't know. Come on, Davy. You coming? Well, sure. Start the last row, Mary, will you please? Take the seat down front. Then Judy Wilton. Then John Young, the third seat. And Martin Young. Your brothers, aren't you? I can tell. And next to the last, Audrey Zant. And George Zimmerman. There. Now, young ladies and gentlemen, here we are. 10B3 at Alexander Hamilton High School. Oh, oh come right in, Bobby. And so, class, this is the first day of our new school year, and this is where we'll meet to start each day and to end it. Uh, the young gentleman who just came in to visit is a senior, and his name is Bobby Morrison. He asked if he could talk to you, and I said he could. All right, Bobby. Thank you. Um, I, I guess, first of all, I want to apologize to you, all of you, Miss Warner and, well, all of you, because of that empty chair. It's my fault. I guess you know about it. I guess you've heard. But I want to tell you how sorry I am. It was my fault. Uh, 
soon you'll be taking those driver training courses, and that way you're going to learn what safety means, that it means respecting the lives of others. Now, that's something I didn't do, and that's why you've got that empty chair instead of David Cooper. But David's going to be all right. I've been spending a lot of time at the hospital, and today they told me that. Well, that's about all, Miss Warner. And thank you for letting me say it. Thank you, Bobby. And that's why we'll save David's seat for him. He's coming back. I want to wish you all a fine, productive, and safe school year. And if there's anything you want to talk to me about, I'll always be here. You may go to your first class. While Agnes Moore had starred in this broadcast, her most famous suspense role was still Sorry, Wrong Number, which she performed eight times, including once while Elliot Lewis was in charge of the show. What about Sorry, Wrong Number? How did they decide that Agnes Moorehead was the right gal to play? I don't think they decided at all. The the script was written for me. It was? Yes, Mm -hmm. by Lucille Fletcher, and it was presented to me. I started to read it, and it got so... Nerve-wracking that I thought no one will listen to this you know, because it just just unnerves you as you go along. Bill Spear was the director. He asked me what I thought of it, and I said, "Well, it's a harrowing story, but it'd be kind of fun to do because it is a you know it's a tour de force." So we went on the air with it. The first time we went they got so excited at the very end that they didn't do the right ending. The men were so excited that it kind of frustrated the actors, the actors and the sound. And so there were a great many people who had been listening in, and they called in and said, what is the end of it? Tell us the end of it. So in about, I would say in about five weeks, I repeated it. Then it was almost a command performance about once, I don't know, I, I did it 18 times on the air. 18? Yes. Oh, my goodness. You made recordings? Then I made a recording of it with Decca. Would you say that that was your most exciting radio performance? No. I've had loads of exciting radio performances. I don't think that that just happens to be a memorable one, but I mean, uh, many of them. Uh, many of the ones on Cavalcade of America. Oh, so many of them that were, that were exciting. Yeah. And now I'd like to present Agnes Moorhead and our producer-director, Elliot Lewis. Thank you, Harlow. Agnes, I'm happy to inform you that you have been voted Autolite's Golden Mike Award for the best female performance of the year on Suspense. Congratulations, and here, this is for you. Oh, thank you, Elliot. As you know, Suspense has always been my favorite radio show, so receiving this award is a double honor. Thank you very, very much. Next week, a story based on fact, as we recreate the excitement and violence of a fire in an oil field. The story is called Hellfire. Our star, Mr. John Hodiak. That's next week on... Suspense. Suspense is transcribed and directed by Elliot Lewis, with music composed by Rennie Garagank and conducted by Lud Gluskin. The Empty Chair was written for Suspense by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. In tonight's story, Sam Edwards was heard as Bobby... Featured in the cast were Michael Chapin, Paula Winslow, Joseph Kearns, and Herb Butterfield. Agnes Moorhead will soon be seen in The Magnificent Obsession. 
And remember, next week, Mr. John Hodiak in Hellfire. And now this is Harlow Wilcox saying goodnight for the Autolite family with this reminder. You're always right to be careful. This is the CBS Radio Network. Radio audiences left for TV. Lewis continued to express his belief that radio was a stronger dramatic medium. On Thursday, January 1st, 1953, Elliot and his wife Kathy debuted a new dramatic anthology program over CBS Airwaves called On Stage. Kathy Lewis, for her part, was not only appearing in a variety of dramatic radio productions, but was also simul co-starring on TV and radio in My Friend Irma. On Stage was geared for adults, showcasing an eclectic array of scripts across multiple genres. To get the show off the ground, the Lewises tabbed some of the best writers in radio, like E. Jack Newman. I want to talk to you a bit about the Kathy and Elliot Lewis show on stage. When you think of that series, which I think is one of the absolute high points of radio, how do you remember that series? Very fondly, of course. And it was in really the uh, waning days of radio. Because television was obviously going to move in and move in big and supplant radio drama as we knew it. But in that year and that time, and particularly with on stage, radio really grew up and put on long pants. It became very adult and very sophisticated and very satisfying. I was lucky enough to write a dozen or so of the on stage with Kathy and Elliot Lewis. Really, it was a free ball. Elliot was a magnificent producer and director and performer. 
I could discuss dramatically very mature subjects and very mature themes. And I did, with no holds barred. And it was a marvelous experience for me as a writer, and I'll, I'll never regret the time and effort I put into it. Stories would be rooted in powerful male-female situations, with two characters of equal strength being the main goal. They used a mix of classic and original tales, cutting across all dramatic disciplines, with mysteries, adventures, melodramas, satires, and comedy. Kathy was the perfect female foil, not just because she was Elliot's real-life wife, but because she was a superb actress, able to play any role with a methodology similar to those who are members of the actor's studio. The goal was to make each character as close to life as possible. Kathy was a consummate actress, of course, beautiful woman. As I recall her, she was very gracious, kind, and very, very competent in her profession. I remember she made a, uh, aside from her enormous success as a radio actress, she was also on a long-run television show, uh, My Friend Irma. Yeah, radio and TV. I always liked Kathy and always got along with her very well. I can't say that has happened with every actress I've worked with since. <laughs> it helped that the West Coast group of actors were like a family. A frequent co-star was Byron Kane. It was all on-the-job training. It started in that backyard of Richard Pettuccini when I said to my other friend, oh yes, I will go over. I walked over to KMPC against the wall with high aberback and away I went. That was really the first thing. Why I was able to do it, I can only say Mother Nature gave me that gift. I was. I have theories, of course, about acting and as, as many years have passed, I've talked to younger actors and told me about their desires and their systems and the methods and the things and I could go on for hours about that. I think a fine actor or actress, I believe I know, a fine actor or actress is born. You don't learn to be a fine actress. You can learn on the job and learn tricks. Oh my God, the mistakes I've made, of course, of course. But the Lorene Tuttles, whoever, however she started, no one has to tell me. She was born and I could go to the list of the people that you could remind me of that I've forgotten. On Wednesday, September 30th, 1953 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, the episode they broadcast was entitled Loving. It co-starred Kane with William Conrad, Barney Phillips, Clayton Post, and was announced by George Walsh. Do you remember the princely sum of money, perhaps, that you made as an announcer for a network radio program in those days? Oh, I think, uh, I think we got $40, maybe. For a program? Yeah. 40 bucks. Does that compare with the memories of Jack Crucian and Shirley Mitchell? And hey, glad to get it. <laughs> you bet. Pay has gone up over the years. Yeah, now we get $42. $42.50. You're like the three scale workers here. <laughs> well, I was the last voice on the format of suspense, known to my daughters in those days who were pretty small as Spooky Daddy. Spooky, Spooky Daddy. <laughs> did, you, did you ever use the voice, like, for disciplinary purposes? Never worked. Never worked, Never worked huh? They, knew. they laughed at you, didn't yeah. they, George? <laughs> Are today's announcers, do you think, George, is as good as they were back in the golden days of radio? Well, I don't think they were announcers in the same sense as they were in those days. I think today they're all doing commercials. There's hardly any such thing as a format announcer anymore. Hardly any such thing as a staff announcer anymore. That's right. 
Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. Kathy Lewis, Elliot Lewis, two of the most distinguished names in radio, appearing each week in their own theater, starring in a repertory of transcribed stories of their own and your choosing. Radio's foremost players in radio's foremost plays. Ladies and gentlemen, Elliot Lewis. Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy? Good evening. To date here on stage, we've done all the types of plays that George Walsh describes every week in his very flattering opening announcement. But there's one type of play he always leaves out, because it's not really a play. It's a series of fragments, a series of short, short stories. But three short, short stories, fragments, should have something in common. A title, an idea, a manner of presentation. And so tonight we present Loving by Arthur Ross. Three short plays about, well, listen. Perhaps there are only three kinds of people in the world. Those who are loved, those who are unloved, and the self-loved. In miniature portrait, in small detail of the small moments of each of the three loves, we shall tell of just such a world divided into three parts. Our first story is about the self-loved. If there are 100 great actresses in the world, Jan Martin is not one of them. But if there are 100 beautiful women in the world, Jan can be counted among their number. That's why she has no illusions about her fame as a motion picture actress. She made sure excellent actors supported her, making it seem their talent was hers. Bitterly and angrily, she clung to each step forward in her career. And with equal anger, she fought anything which seemed to detract from her beauty on the screen, or anyone who seemed to be attracting more attention than she in her pictures. Her life was as delicate as a prime minister's or a secretary of state. Each move had to be well calculated for its appearance as well as its result. This had not helped the progress of her latest picture, or her relations with the leading man who played opposite her a man she had been sincerely in love with since the middle of January when he had won an Academy Award. But this was June, toward the end of the day and the end of the picture. Darling, be a dear, call my wardrobe girl. She's right there, just signaling. You're not being very sweet. Janet's late. I'm tired, you're tired. Never mind. Edith, honey, be a darling. Throw this up, will you? Ed, how was it? Well, it uh, could have had a little more honesty to it. It seemed uh, indifferent instead of subdued, you know? I was doing exactly the way you told me to, Eddie. Exactly. I didn't mean for you to do it exactly as I described it, Jan. Well, what do you mean, really, Eddie? What do you mean? Don't get excited, Jan. We're getting a couple of more takes on it. 
helping me much, not at all. I tried. This is the most important scene I've got, and you keep pulling me down in it. The best love scene. You don't... You, you just don't... I've been considered a competent actor by several qualified people. Now, don't give me that broad A routine, sweetheart. This isn't Broadway. You're not doing it's and honey. All right, that's a take. Now, will you try to be a little more considerate? Like what? Like moving back toward the chair just a little. I'll get off the scene completely. How's that? This will take. Not right, quiet. Quiet! Roll them. Speed. Action. Can you forgive me? I never judged you. I have no need to forgive you. Because you weren't like them, as cruel as they were. You never hurt me. Why did they want to hurt me? What had I done that I... Oh, I forgot that rotten line again. All right, cut it. I always forget that line. It's a terrible line. I just can't say it. We have to change that line, honey. No time to, John. We'll take it again. Well, Tom, it's that move that I make to you. you. You just have to get back toward the chair. You have it to. It takes two people to play this scene. What do you mean? I thought it was obvious. You're assuming an awful lot, honey, just because of our relationship. Do we have one? We must have. I've never, never put up with so much from a leading man. You seem to be the only one with a problem in this picture. Oh, Look, honey, let's not fight. Just be a darling. What does it hurt? Be a darling and move back just a few feet, just for this scene. It's a love scene, Jan. That wouldn't make it very intimate. But it would play better. Can you play a love scene alone? Now, just a minute. I guess if anyone can, you can. Now, you just... Are you going to move back? Hold it. Hold it! What? Jan, is there something wrong? Uh, no... No. Okay. Roll them. Speed. Action. Can you forgive me? I never judged you. I don't have the need to forgive you. Because you weren't like them, as cruel as they were. You never hurt me. Why did they want to hurt me? What had I done that made them hate me so? What had... Oh, I can't. I can't do that line. Right, cut it. I won't do that line. How do you want to change, Jack? Oh, well, darling, really. And do you think it's playable? Well, let's leave that way in rehearsal. Well, then maybe it isn't the line. How so? Maybe. Maybe it's the way we're placed, honey. I, I'm not criticizing you, but but uh, now look, just look. I, I wind up like a lady wrestler. Uh, what do you suggest? Well, if I moved up, just up, just a little bit. No, no, no. That that's too awkward. Uh, Tom. Or if I move back a bit. Would you mind? We're behind schedule. Okay. Ah, you're a darling. You're a real darling, huh? Save your emotion for the scene. What? Save your affection for the scene. It's a little more credible there. All right, be a sorehead. Be mad. I'm not mad at you, Jan. I've just had enough of your petulant, selfish childishness. All right, all right, all right, if that's the way you feel. And I do. Well, you certainly have deep feelings yourself. I hope so. You love me, but when I ask for a favor, it's too much of a sacrifice. You've asked for them all the way through the picture. I'm a woman, you're a man. You're supposed to be an adult, too. As the star, I'm entitled to some extra consideration. It's all yours. What? The picture isn't finished, but we are. Do you think that's going to make me come begging? Of course not. You're self-sufficient, Jan. You don't need anyone but yourself. And don't you envy Let it. Let me put it another way. You're not capable of wanting anybody but yourself. All right, stop that! Stop it right now! 
All right. I want to finish this scene if she does. I... Of course I do. All right. Roll them. Fire. Speed. Action. Can you forgive me? I never judged you. I don't have any need to forgive you. Because you weren't like them, as cruel as they were. You never hurt me. Why did they want to hurt me? What had I done that made them hate me so? What did they want? To be loved the way you are loved. Oh, yes. Yes. Cut! Print it! By the fall of 1953... William Conrad was in his second year as Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. Although he was one of radio's busiest veterans, he'd just turned 33 years old only three days prior. He was equally at home in both starring and supporting roles. Oh, I don't know. I was fascinated with radio uh, when I was a kid. I had to go to work very early. My father died when I was, I think, 15. I had a dear friend who was an announcer on one of the local stations... And I used to hang around with him at night, and he'd let me... This is long before AFTRA, or AFRA. He'd let me do a commercial every now and then, and that fascinated me. And I went to a radio station called KMPC and started working. Uh, I stayed there for a long, long time. I don't know, I was just... Uh, it's the only thing I could figure to do at that point in my life. <laughs> The first story, about the self-loved. The second story is about the unloved. Perhaps one of the reasons the San Joaquin Valley in Central California is such a great farming area is because of the intense summer sun. The crops seem to rush to full growth in a frantic effort to be free of the intense heat. And so it was in the Army Hospital Ward in which Bucko worked. Other ward boys had long since wilted, but Bucko worked on, his 200-pound body scurrying and hurrying to help and assist. His overlong arms, which extended two inches below the cuffs of his wrinkled jacket, offered cool drinks to the sick and unhappy soldier patients. The extra effort, the extra service which no other ward boy offered always obtained for Bucko a friendly, grateful word from the patient. And then his ugliness, the high, incredibly high domed forehead and small, deep-set eyes, the jowly face, the odd, almost distorted face seemed to brighten and look happy. To be wanted, to be liked so genuinely made up in many ways for the cruel jibes of his fellow ward boys. Hiya, Romeo. Getting set for the knock em dead in town tonight? I'm meeting some friends. I got some friends in town. Modest boy. Modest boy. I hear you're lining up one of those daughters of a rich farmer. Don't talk like that. What's wrong? We get just greasy spoon chow in town, but you get good cooking. 
future son-in-law always gets good cooking. I know one of the girls, but she only thanked me. Her brother was a patient here, and she thanked me for being nice to him. Is that the one you're talking about? That one? <laughs> no, sir, bucko. All of them. All of them. What's he got the way you ain't got? Whatever it is, who needs it? <laughs> <laughs> Want to buy sale you? Yeah, get in. What outfit you with? Medical corps. Most guys just say medic. You say the whole thing. I guess maybe it means more to me. You going to regular army when this is over? Well, I mean... I'm going to medical school after I get out of service. Takes a long time. I'm not doing it alone. My wife's going to help me. That's the way. My wife wouldn't help me with nothing. Nagging all the time, asking, asking, never helping. How long you been married? I'm not married yet. We're going to get married in a couple of months. It'll change then. The whole thing. No help, nothing. No, sir. Not Alice. Not Alice and me. She loves me enough to work and help out and wait. You're lucky, soldier. I am. I'm lucky to have a girl like Alice in love with me. Thanks a lot, mister. Hello, Alice. Hi. Would you like a drink? No, no more for me. I'm... I'm sorry I'm late. It's okay. Is there any place you'd like to go? No. We can go into Fresno and have a good dinner. I said no. Can't you get that? It's bad enough my meeting you here all the time. It don't hurt to meet me here. The other girls, they kid me. They make fun of me meeting you. They think I like you. Don't you? They mean like you a lot. I'm sorry, Alice. Maybe I got just enough of this. It don't hurt you any to be with me a while. The other girls make fun of me. Well, who are they? Nobody. Nothing. Drunks and all. What difference does it make whatever they think? They're important to me because I see them all the time. You don't. All you got to do once or twice a week is sit with me and drink beer and go to dinner or maybe go for a walk. And listen. Listening all the time to the same talk. Well, don't do no hurt to you to listen. I know your life story so good I could tell you. Don't talk like that. Don't make me sore at you. You're threatening me. You're threatening me. I'll clear out of so, so fast it'll make your head no, swim. No, no. I didn't mean that. No. I didn't mean that at all. I'd never hurt you. And don't I pay you to listen? To just listen and pretend? Does it do you any hurt or anybody? Okay. I want to talk about it tonight, Alice. 
I want to tell you it's been tough for me. My pa, a big, tough man who never wanted to see me when my ma died. I was scared of him, and I loved him. Someday, when I'm a doctor, maybe I'll be a children's doctor. When I'm a doctor, I'll find out how you can love somebody and be scared of them, too. He loved you, Bucko. Maybe he did. You think so? You think he did? I don't know. I've been knocking around so long, so much, picking crops and all. You know I picked crops before the army? Yeah, I know. I'm beginning to forget all that happened. I don't want to. Going up and down the valley, picking lettuce and tomatoes and grapes, everything. The things I seen, Alice. I said seen again. But my English is better than it was, isn't it? Isn't it? I guess so. It takes an education to meet the right people, to be liked every place. And best of all is being a doctor. Doctors are really liked. Their patients almost love them for helping them and all. I don't want to hear any more. You're sore at me. I don't care if you do pay me ten bucks to just sit and listen. I want to have fun. I'll take you any place you want to go. I only use my money to take you out, Alice. You're no fun. You make me feel funny. Like I'm all alone, like both of us are. I don't like that. You're not alone. Give me the creeps. You never laugh. I only want you to say it to me, Alice. I'm going. There's the ten dollars, Alice. I... Please. I love you, Bucko. That's why you fight with me? That's why you always want to run away? That's why. Say it real, Alice. I love you, Bucko. Good night, Alice. Good night. Never call me again. Never. Noble, Fred Steiner, and Lud Gluskin's music beautifully fit the production. And the sound patterns by Ross Murray and Burns Surrey were exceptional. You are listening to Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. Tonight's play, Loving. He's Hoosier's great gift to radio, Herb Schreiner. And he's about to be yours every Saturday night on CBS Radio's new delightful audience participation quiz, Two for the Money. This Saturday, be sure to take in the colorful premiere of Herb Schreiner's new show on CBS Radio, You'll love every minute of Two for the Money. Now to bring our stories of loving to a logical conclusion, our last story about the loved ones. Are you too old? Is the memory too dim to remember the first time you said, I love you? Are you too young? Hasn't the rapturous, tormented, beautiful moment come to you yet? Are you just old enough for it to have just happened? To have whispered the lyrical words in front of a crackling fire, a water's edge, a 
tree-spired hill? Or has it all happened before? Too many times before, so the words become metallic and the emotion only a gesture out of respect to your companion's feelings. No matter, the magic moment of the first time you said it is still there. Bob Rose and Sally Davis' young college loves had started as others had before. There was no trumpeting to herald this as any different from those which had preceded it. And they were too sophisticated to succumb to this deepest of feelings. For he was in law school and she was an undergraduate. For he was soon to become a lawyer and she a bachelor of arts. For they had discussed everything. Everything. Politics, religion, art, philosophy, literature the mechanical age, and the Elizabethan era. Everything had been said except one thing. Wonderful party. Fine party. What's wrong? Nothing. You don't have to bite my head off. Bite your head off? What did I say? I simply said nothing was wrong. All right. Why are you sitting way over there? Over where? On the opposite side. I'm sitting right next to you. Right next to you. Maybe we have a different idea of what right next to one means. It's relative, you know. Relative to what? To how you feel. I feel very affectionate. <laughs> That's better. What a beautiful night. I'll hate to leave here. So will I. A graduate student shouldn't have such sentimental attachments to a school. I suppose undergraduate students are something strange. Well, I just meant that I'm getting ready to take the bar exam, and, and, uh, and it's different. The rah-rah uh, spirit isn't quite the same. What's wrong with sentiment? Oh, nothing, but it isn't really honest emotion. It'll do until something better comes along. Well, that's all it should be, a stopgap until the real thing does come along. Hmm. You going right into practice, or are you going to vacation first? Oh, I have to go right into practice. The spot that was offered to me, if I don't grab it right away, they'll give it to somebody else. Oh. Well, what's wrong? Nothing. Well, something must be wrong. Why? Well, the way you said, oh, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong, nothing at all. Okay. Yes, something is wrong. What? You. You seem to be so contentious. You, you always seem to find something to argue about. Me? You weren't that way when we first started going out. I thought you were doing the same thing. How do you expect me to react when you jump on every word I say? Well, maybe I'm just following your lead. This is where I live. Okay, I'll stop the car. It's easy. You don't have to see me in. Don't be foolish. I'm not being foolish. The lights are on and you can watch from the car. You don't have to see me in. Sally. Yes. Uh... Want a cigarette first before you go in? No, thanks. Well, how come? I just don't want one. You've always had a last cigarette with me since our first date. Maybe I just don't feel like one. But if you want one, go ahead. 
Would you prefer it if I didn't call you again? What? If that's what you want? I didn't say it's what I want. But it does seem to be what you want. I didn't say I don't want to see you again. But you act like it all night long. You've been acting strange. That's all. Like what? Tell me. Go ahead and tell me. You mentioned it earlier at the party. Just tell me what I did that, that, that was so strange. Well, you didn't pay much attention to me, for one thing. You sat off by yourself kind of brooding all evening. Well, I, I wanted to spend time with you. It seems all we've done is go out with other couples or, or, or to parties. You like them, too. They're mutual friends, not just mine. Okay, okay, okay. Look, you don't have to see me if you don't want to. Nobody makes you call me for a date. Are you seeing somebody else? Of course. You, you don't think I'm just going out with you? You know that. Oh, I meant, are you very serious about any of those other guys? That's pretty personal. Well, maybe it is. But I, I just want to know if you want to see me. If I'm intruding or complicating things for you, I'd just like to know. Well, I... You're not complicating things, Bob. <laughs> for a fellow who, whose whole career is based on logic, <laughs> I'm not very logical at, at times. <laughs> oh, yeah. Both been a little funny lately, I guess. I'll miss you, Sally. You'll be busy working. Listen, Sally. Listen. I think I'm going to miss seeing you, too. I... I'm very fond of you. And I like you a lot. I do. I... I'll miss you terribly. More than I ever thought I could miss anyone. Bob. I love you, Sally. I love you. I love you, I love Bob. You. I love you. I love you, Sally. Bob, how I love you. stage came at a bittersweet time in Kathy and Elliot Lewis's lives. Even as CBS referred to them as Mr. and Mrs. Radio, their marriage of 10 years was in trouble. They'd remained together throughout most of the 1950s, but divorced in 1959. Elliot would soon marry another noteworthy actress, Mary Jane Croft. Loving starring Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. In a moment, Mr. and Mrs. Lewis will tell you about next week's play. CBS Radio unveils its sparkling new production, Stage Struck, this Friday night. It's an exciting, colorful visit to Broadway with the greats of show business. This Friday, your host, Mike Wallace, takes you to meet Rosalind Russell, Shirley Booth, Basil Rathbone, and many others. Remember, Friday night on most of these same stations, go Stage Struck with CBS Radio. And now, once again, Kathy and Elliot Lewis. 
while Kathy was an actress who loved herself, William Conrad was the patient motion picture director. And when Elliot felt himself unloved, Clayton Post and Byron Kane taunted him. And Barney Phillips drove him into town in his truck. A few weeks passed, we did a play by E. Jack Newman called The Crustacean. And as always happens with one of E. Jack Newman's scripts, your response was either loud applause or noisy catcalls. But there's no way to play it safe in show business. You can't please everyone. As a matter of fact, if you take the argument out of drama, you have nothing left but unrelated words. And so, because this is that kind of a show, next week, another new play by E. Jack Newman. This one about an ex-football player who was called the Great Dane. Until next week, thank you for listening. Good night. Good night. And Elliot Lewis was... Elliot Lewis was fired director yes, as well a, as a perfectly mm-hmm. wonderful oh, yeah. actor. Yes, but he was a wonderful actor. A magnificent director. Mm-hmm. Very easy. So yes. maybe just the opposite of a Bill Robeson approach. Well, he was quiet, mm-hmm. wasn't he? No, quiet, he got things done. Music for tonight's story was composed and conducted by Fred Steiner. The Kathy and Elliot theme is by Ray Noble. And the program is transcribed and directed by Mr. Lewis. George Walsh speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. I found a box that Elliot had with little cards and all alphabetized. What it was, this is how orderly he was. Starting in 1937, I'm cherishing this box of cards. It had every show he did. What it paid, $3 an hour. That's right, $5. Calling All Cars was one of them. What, some of the early ones. Yes, right. God, I can't Tapestries remember. Tapestries of Life. Yeah, all that's of these a, things. That and it did. goes all the way through, and every week he totaled it up. But the thing that fascinated me was the names of all these shows and how much they paid. Yes, <laughs> right. Three dollars and That's half. right. escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. (laughs) Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. Now, Elliot Lewis is one of those unusual people here in radio, producer, director, actor, writer.
What do you think he did best? Well, he was a wonderful director. Producing wasn't that much in radio. He was a wonderful and a wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. I can't say on, a, on any graduated scale what he was best. He was wonderful. You know, he thinks of himself as a writer. Well, he's a, a writer director. now. Yeah, right. we're in constant contact. Mm-hmm. I go up and visit him in Oregon. And, uh, oh, yeah. And we talk. As a matter of fact, we're trying now, because we were approached, pardon me, to get crime classics on as a TV show to be done in England. Oh, really? Yeah. To put it very simply, I have respect for one thing only. That is not temperament, but talent. All the rest of it is just dressing. It's nonsense. I got along beautifully with actors and actresses. Unlike Mr. Hitchcock, I respect actors and actresses. I don't think, as he has been widely quoted saying, that he thinks they're children and he wish he could do without them. I think they have a very difficult task. They live a very difficult life. Most people don't realize that the average life of an actor is seven years. Seven earning years. So if they have trepidations and nerves and concerns. My only episodes with actors, and that particularly one that you uh, talk about, uh, was a man now deceased by the name of Lou Merrill, a very fine actor. But he had all sorts of inner hates and inner turmoils. And unfortunately, I think in this broadcast, we're doing one with, I think it was Greer Garson. And he was playing opposite her, and he was difficult. Oh, we had so little time. And through the microphone, all through the rehearsal, he was making all kinds of scurrilous remarks at his director. And just before we went in the air, he said something, and I don't remember anything except literally seeing red and they tell me I tore out of the control room tore into the studio ran up to him and with the hardest punch I've ever thrown and I used to fight in the ring when I was young I hit him smack on the jaw since he outweighed me about three to one shuddered and just at that moment I saw the red arm of the clock go up to tell me that we were on the air. The red light went on. And I pointed at him, and the reflex action worked. He began to talk, and he did a beautiful performance. And after that, we were very, very good friends. We never had any more trouble. When On Stage signed off at 9.30, Crime Classics signed on. Each week, Lou Merrill, the man who Arch Obler punched, voiced Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, who hosted this program of macabre historical tales. Why don't we go down the list for a moment? Lou Merrill. Well, he was a complete pro. He never had any problem. He knew just what the character was supposed to do. He did it, and he went home. Now, Lou Merrill was the... Uh, narrator. He was the narrator. He's on all of the crime classic shows. Mm-hmm. He's basically the star. Mm-hmm. Bernard Herman composed the music. 
while Fine and Freakin joined Lewis in writing for the program. Of course, Crime Classics was way offbeat. I loved that show more than anything that we did. What made that so special? Because we all knew radio was dying, and we all knew that we were all very good at what we did. Bernie Herman did the music, mm-hmm. Elliot Lewis produced and directed it, and David and I had a flair to write this kind of tongue-in-cheek comedy, which a lot of them were. It was just lovely to do it. It first aired on Monday, June 15, 1953. It grew out of Lewis's deep interest in history's great murder cases. He had compiled an extensive library of true crime, often with primary source material dating back to the 17th century. He decided to not only recreate the crime, but the time in which the crimes took place. Each episode traveled back to when the event occurred. Care was taken to construct dialogues, attitudes, and sounds. It was meant to be dry and slightly comical, rather than a classroom docudrama. On Wednesday, September 30th, the new season premiered with the story of the very suspicious Borden family murders. Good evening. This is Crime Classics. I am Thomas Highland with another true story of crime. Listen. That's a chicken. She's a fat one. She's doing practically all the things a chicken can do. And besides all this cleverness, she's about to perform her primary function. She's going to be a dinner. The lady who carries the bird in her left hand is named Abby Durfee Borden, stepmother to Emma and Lizzie Borden. Mrs. Borden weighs over 200 pounds. The curved-handled axe she holds in her right hand is her favorite when she goes out amongst the chickens. Her favorite because with it she does such a neat job. Which is more than I can say for the person who murdered Mrs. Borden and her husband, Mr. Borden. So tonight, my report to you on... The Bloody, Bloody Banks of Fall River. Crime Classics. A new series of true crime stories from the records and newspapers of every land, from every time. Your host each week, Mr. Thomas Highland, connoisseur of crime, student of violence, and teller of murders. Now, once again, Mr. Thomas Highland. The place is Fall River, Massachusetts, at the start of a hot August in 1892. In that era, it was a town whose dominant color was brown, the color of sun-dried lawns, of rain-stippled brick and board, of ladies' dresses that reached from neck to pavement. Next in popularity, as far as color went, was black. It was a stern time and a stern place, and bleak, where certain types of smiles were suspect and where women only dared to stretch in the privacy of kitchen or boudoir. It was a time, too, when 18 was the age of marriage, and a single woman of 32 had to find surcease in this way. Breaking saloon's windows. Knitting. Secretly tearing from the newspaper the latest picture of John L. Sullivan. Also, Jim Corbett, who was rumored to be more of a gentleman. Or this way.
death thy endless mercy seal. Lizzie Borden's way. And make the sacrifice complete. Amen. Amen. There now. How did you like that hymn? Oh, very much, Reverend Job. And then I shall write my brother to send me the rest of the new ones from New York. I trust your judgment, Miss Borden, implicitly. How is your brother? Oh, he's getting married. Married? Didn't I tell you? No. No, you didn't. I'm sorry. I think, Reverend, you might have let me know in another way. Less blunt. But you don't even know my brother. I hope he'll be very happy. I'm sure you do. Reverend. Yes, Miss Lizzie? And how much longer will you grieve? Dear Miss Lizzie. Your wife is gone now for four years. Dear, dear Miss Lizzie, how kind is your concern? Uh, <clears throat> Still let me prove thy perfect will. My acts of faith, faith and, and love, love repeat. repeat. Till, Till death, death thy endless mercy seal. Father likes chicken, Lizzie. Chicken he shall get. Glad you came out to the backyard. You can do something for me besides picking pears from the tree. You're just jealous because you can't eat pears, Mrs. Borden, because you break out. Where you been, Lizzie? With the Reverend Mr. Jubb. He got some new hymns from New York. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Oh, if I was a true mother to you instead of a stepmother... I tell you right out, you're never going to get married, Lizzie. New hymns from New York, your work with the fruit and flower mission, none of these are going to help. If I was a true mother to you, I'd tell you all of those things, but tenderly. Yes, Mrs. Borden. And it eats inside you, doesn't it, stepdaughter? Yes, Mrs. Borden. You and your sister Emma, old maids. They say that about you. Did you know that? Yes. Yes, Mrs. Borden. Here. Least you can do is some work. You can pluck a chicken as well as anyone. Yeah, well, I do the other. Get used to being useful. That's a way to live, too. Take it. All right. Mrs. Borden? What is it? Aren't you concerned about yesterday? What about yesterday? About the barns being broken into. Some children, probably. Why should they break into the barn? Looking for iron for sinkers so they could fish. 
Not so delicate, Lizzie. You do it this way. This way. I told Mr. Jubb about the milk. What are you talking about? About the milk. What about it? You've been in the sun too long, Mrs. Borden. Burned your memory away. About the milk. It's being poisoned. <gasps> poisoned? Why else do you think everyone in the family got sick day before yesterday? You didn't. I don't drink milk. And the barn's being ransacked. There's someone who wants to do us harm. <laughs> Make your fancy, stepdaughter. Someone who hates my father. <laughs> Your father said a man at the bank had cursed him. <laughs> father said he'd seen the man loitering about. Oh, now we've come to it, haven't we? What? Now we've brought the conversation around. What? Your father. Tell you something. He doesn't care for you. <laughs> he doesn't care for you at all. He loves me. Not at all. <gasps> What's the matter? Blood. All over my hands. Blood. Ooh, chicken blood. It'll wash off. That's the trouble with you, Lizzie. You shudder your way through. <gasps> what did you do that for? What did you smear that blood on my face for? To see how you look, Mrs. Borden. Lewis would comb through written text with Fine and Freakin, from which the outline would emerge. Afterwards, they found it easy to pen humorous, arsenic-laced shows. Radio Life said it wasn't enough to make light of murder, just enough to let a breath of fresh air enter these tale of horror scripts. During the era that you were writing the shows, when you turned in a script to CBS, for example, did you work exclusively for CBS most Almost of those years? exclusively. Yeah. Was there a reason for it? Never out of work. As long as I was at CBS. I was never out of work anyhow on radio, ever, mm -hmm. David and I, in all those years. So once the two of you have written a script that you're satisfied with, what happens next to your script? Gave it to Grace Curcio, who was Elliot's secretary. Grace was the mother of us all. She handled all that stuff, and then time for broadcast, there were the scripts on the table. Unchanged. So she was in charge of having other people type them up and duplicate them. Yep. And then it would go into rehearsal and finally broadcast. I think she typed up most of them. Now, do you have any part in the uh, rehearsal, or you, were the two of you there ever? We were often there, almost always there. We just had such a good time being there. It's a whole different kind of mystique about radio than about television. There was never any pressure. And everybody respected everybody and kind of loved each other. And it was fun. It was just fun. I would sit around the table and we'd laugh and tell jokes and help with crossword puzzles. And uh, <laughs> we were just part of it, that's oh. all. Did you have any input, give Rarely, any input yeah, into that's, a show? That's if uh, Elliot wanted to cut a half a page on account of time, mm -hmm. he would check with us. Or if we weren't there, he didn't need us for that. Or sometimes we would like write a sentence that would tie up this and that and leave out the huge middle part. This is not exactly a healthy relationship between two grown people. 
But let's face it, the possibility of a lady's liking another lady in the Borden household was pretty remote. First of all, after the widowed Mr. Borden married Abby, he told his two daughters to do everything Abby told them. And often, Abby would order Lizzie to do things right in the middle of plucking a pear from the backyard tree. And Lizzie dearly loved the pears from the backyard tree. Also, it was a constant source of wild hilarity for Abby that neither of her stepdaughters had been taken as bride. She'd gotten married, but Lizzie never did, nor Lizzie's sister, Emma. And sometimes Lizzie would go to her father's room, and she'd ask him this. How can you stand her? She takes care of my needs. She cherishes me. She's a hulk. When seen through the eyes of affection... Oh, father! It's much too late to ask you to love her, Lizzie. But I insist that this kind of conversation concerning my wife shall be the last. Whatever you say, father. Now, it's very hot. I think I lie down. I'll take off your shoes. Never mind. I want to. Very well. Father. Yes? Tell me about my mother, my real mother. Oh, Lizzie, it's been so long. I've forgotten. You have not. Yes. Yes, I have. No. She was very lovely. She had brown hair. She had brown eyes, and she was slender. You used to tell me... Father. What? Why did you let her die? She had a sickness for which... You let her die. You could have saved her and you let her die. Lizzie! And you married that Hulk. I forbid you... Father, Father, listen to me. I forbid you to speak of my wife in such a manner. Let's go away from here, Father. Away? Yes, you and I. Give that woman this house and we'll go away. You'll go away, not me. What? You speak often of quitting this house. Going to live with a friend. Do it. You can't mean it. Do it. Good night. Father. Father. I want you to know I always love you. No matter what you say to me. I know. And I'm sorry for you. Good night, Lizzie. Among the cast in this episode were Irene Tedrow, Bill Johnstone, Herb Butterfield, and Jeanette Nolan, who, like Elliot Lewis, got her start in radio thanks to True Boardman. That's right. Dear True, with whom I had gone to school, we at City College, when it was first established in the fall of 1929, had a drama department which was headed by Harold Turney. Mm-hmm. And into that original group, of people who were taking drama came a professional actor, a really, truly dyed-in-the-wool, carried-on-stage as a baby, (laughs) True Boardman, son of True Boardman and Virginia Boardman, both great Broadway actors. And True had acted all his life, but he wanted to get a degree, and so he came there to fit in certain courses. And, of course, we were overwhelmed to have in our midst a professional actor. Mm -hmm. So we all had the joy of working with him. And then I had the fun of being student director on Barclay Square, which he did. And later, 
uh, it was a very severe part of the Depression, and I couldn't return to school after the first year. I was working down at the Army and Navy store one day on Tuesday and then on Saturday, and I used to go up to the Los Angeles Public Library in my lunch hour, and there one day came Drew Boardman, mm -hmm. and he said, why aren't you in school? And I said, I can't be in school now. So I said, when the Depression is over, then I'll go back. And he said, well, why don't you get in radio? Now, for us as a family, the Nolans, radio was two sets of earphones. <laughs> and we all loved music, and that was our entire focus. And so my mother and father would split a pair, each one taking one, lie on the bed, and my brother, Phil, and I would split the other. And we would listen to the symphony, and that's all we knew about radio, was what was on, on truly wonderful music. So True said, don't you know about black and blue? And I said, no. And, and he said, don't you know about Chandu? So once again, I, I was totally confused, and he said, I'm going to give you the name of a man to go and see, but don't tell any other girls I sent you. So I went to see the man. Cyril Armbrister was his name, a very wonderful director, and he was working with an advertising agency by the name of Earnshaw Young. I met him, and he said, Darling, could you read for me? And I said, Yes. And he said, This is a Eurasian. And I said, That's all right. So I read for him, and happily, in another day, the phone rang at the neighbors. We didn't have a phone. And I had gotten the job. And that was the beginning of my career in Los Angeles radio. It was the night of August 3rd in the year 1892. A stifling night, humid, sleepless, and filled with drone. A million small sounds, continuous and insistent, made up of insects and dry grass and moist night clothes against moist bedding. And in the middle room of the second floor of number 92 Second Street, Lizzie Borden walked. And walked. And grew warmer. And walked. Lizzie Borden wept, her face pressed to the earth, she wept, and in a little while, for some reason or another, she got up and walked over to the pear tree, and plucked a pear, and ate it, and smacked her lips, sweet with juice, at the moon. Lizzie Borden.
listening to Crime Classics and your host, Thomas Hyland. We also left always, you know, and that... I know. Uh, we had the joy of hearing Elliot oh, Lewis. Yes, yes. While we were in our <clears throat> cabin, uh, I don't know if you know that, but my husband wanted to get away from the profession and build a log cabin in the wilderness and live in a primitive manner. And we saved to do that. We worked a year and a half in New York, and then we left for the wilderness. We came back to civilization when we needed to get more money so we could leave again. <laughs> so we would come back and... But yes. while we were in the cabin at magical night, Mm-hmm. And it was snowing, and it was deep, six feet outside, and we heard these two voices, and we grabbed each other. <laughs> what is that? Because we knew everybody from New York and from California, and we kept track of all of them. And so we didn't know, and so we wrote a letter to Elliot. We didn't know who it was, Elliot Lewis and Bill Conrad. Those two voices yes. we heard, mm. and they were so electrifying oh, yeah. that we were just enthralled. Mm. We said, God, when we go back, I hope we can meet them, you know. It was, <laughs> it was, so, it was so fascinating uh, yeah. to hear a new kind of voice. Yeah. It meant so much, as radio meant always to us, as it would to everyone, of course, who lived in a remote place. Betty Harford play the young maid. Betty Harford is another person who... Oh, what a talented lady. Betty Harford, she was English, but she was one of the great character actresses of our day. And she's a good old buddy. We see each other and kiss and hug. Is she still around? Yes, she is. She played on Paper Chase. She was the secretary to the head of the law school. Who were the top female radio performers from your point of view. Buddy Lou Gerson, I remember, mm-hmm. who played Effie on Sam Spade. Lorene Tuttle. Lorene Tuttle. Georgia Ellis. My God. They were all... That's one of the most sensational things about radio that never fails to boggle the mind. We come in at CBS about 10.30 in the morning. The actors would see the script for the first time and we would go on the air coast to coast at like 4.30 in the afternoon or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Incredible the way they did it. I'd like to give you a brief rundown on the Borden family. Let's pick the last day all of them were alive, August 4th, 1892. Let's say about 7 o'clock in the morning. Andrew Jackson Borden yawning. A.J. Borden is the head of the house and worth over a quarter of a million dollars. He's getting up now and getting ready to go to the bank so he can be near some of it. Lace me up, Andrew. Abby Durfee Borden, just before lacing up. Abby is 64 years of age and hadn't gone downstairs without a corset since the age of 15. Lizzie Borden, still asleep. Night clothes on the chair where she left them last night and dreamless. Woman in bed. There are two other people I must mention. There's Bridget Sullivan, the maid, who is making the mutton soup for breakfast, 
And Emma Borden, sister to Lizzie, who's off on a trip to Fairhaven in behalf of the Fruit and Flower Mission. We know that the Bordens, all of them, had their breakfast. We know that Mr. Borden left the house at 9 o'clock for the bank. And we know that Bridget washed the windows in the attic. And we know that as Bridget sat on the windowsill, washing in such a way that a good part of her was hanging over 2nd Street, Lizzie Borden was inside holding her feet so Bridget wouldn't fall. And we know, too, that there was conversation. I don't feel so good. Why? What's the matter? My stomach still hurts when I press it. It's from the other day. When the milk was poisoned? Oh, I don't think it was the milk. It was the bananas. I think Mrs. Borden fried them too long. And I always say that bananas fried too long in mutton soup don't go well together. Oh, help me inside, Lizzie. Here. Press me. Here. Oh! You see? Well, then you should lie down, Bridget, and sleep. Oh, if I could, I would. But I got these windows to do. You just lie down here in your room and sleep. Oh, but... Oh, you do what I tell you. If you mean it, there's nothing I'd like better. I mean it. I'd better inform Mrs. Borden where I'll be no. in case... I'd better? No. Mrs. Borden is going out soon. Going out? Oh, she did now in a napping. I really do. Here. I'll turn down your bedclothes. In. In with you. Now you just go to sleep. Saying that to Bridget right to sleep. Saying a thing like that was like putting chloroform under Bridget's nose. She was a snoozer, that one. When she worked, she worked, but get her on a feather bed, good night all, off she went. Lizzie tucked her in and watched over her for a few minutes, and then Lizzie went downstairs and into the guest room. Hello, Mrs. Borden. What do you want, Lizzie? I thought you'd gone out. What made you think that? I just thought so. And now what do you want? What are you doing in this room, Mrs. Borden? And why shouldn't I be here? Well, Bridget could make up the guest room. You don't have you to... You know very well Bridget is not allowed to clean any of the rooms on the second floor. Oh, yes, I... But father's coming home. That's strange. The side door's locked. He can't get in. It's never locked this time of day. Hurry! Just a minute! Haven't you got a key? Why is the side door locked? I don't know. Haven't you got a key? No. Come down and open the door. But try the front one. All right. Wait a minute. It's locked. I'll send Lizzie down. Go down and open the door for your father. A Vacuum in Time Here is where truth ends and knowledge. On August the 4th, 1892, at number 92 2nd Street in the town of Fall River, Massachusetts, the time between 10 and 11.15 a.m. is lost. Lost, that's the only word for it. Wrenched somehow out of the rest of time, and lost, and started again when that happened. Bridget! Bridget! Get up! Get up! 
when that was spoken. Did you call me, Miss Lizzie? Come downstairs, quickly! Someone came into the house and murdered Father! What? What did you say? Someone has murdered Father! Murdered him? With an axe. No, no, don't go in there. Go across the street and get Dr. Brown. Quickly! for Mr. Harrington to the police. Yes? Who's that? It's me. It's Bridget. Dr. Bowen will be over. May I say something? Of course. Mr. Harrington of the police should know about this. Uh, perhaps Mrs. Borden should know of this first. She's not here. She's out on a sick call. Where is everybody? Oh, in here, Dr. Bowen, the sitting room. Father is quite dead, my dear. Yes. I suggest you so inform the police. Inform Mr. Harrington. I'll, I'll see to it. You're very kind. What's it take to be a radio writer? What did it take in that era where there was dramatic radio? A sense of story. As simple as that. And it stood us well in a transition to uh, television. It's the knowledge of how to build a story. You have to know how to tell a story. What can I tell you? I've taught radio and I've taught TV, and oftentimes a student will, will say, well, where do you get your stories? I say to them, buy a big house, get a big mortgage, and you better damn sight get the story. <laughs> Real That's fast. How you get them. So it's uh, necessity is the mother of creation in your mind at times? Right. I always had a facility for dialogue. I learned about story in school and reading radio scripts. And radio was easy. This next will be pretty hard to take, but you just have to believe it. I've got the records right here to prove it. Not only was Mr. Harrington not to be found, but there was hardly any cop at all in Fall River. At this very moment, most of them were taking part in the annual excursion of the Fall River Police Association at a shore resort at Rocky Point, which is near Providence, Rhode Island. So, even as Mrs. Churchill was yelling her lungs out for a policeman, they were running sack races, splitting up into quartets for singing purposes, and the more athletic were getting their mustaches wet in the Atlantic Ocean. However, a Marshal Hilliard, who had gotten up too late to meet the trolley, which met the excursion train, was sulking around town, and he's the one Mrs. Churchill spotted. She brought him back to number 92 Second Street. Here, the marshal viewed the body, gave condolences to Lizzie, and set about looking for clues. 
During his search, Mrs. Churchill made a remarkable discovery. Lizzie. Yes, Mrs. Churchill? I've just been up on the second floor. Yes. Your mother's up there. She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. She's dead. She's my stepmother. It looks like somebody took an axe and... Well, she's dead. It was quite a troop who went upstairs to look in on Mrs. Abby Borden. There was Lizzie and Bridget and Marshall Hilliard. Then there was Mrs. Russell and Mrs. Bowen and several other ladies who happened in off the street. Then there was Dr. Bowen, and in a little while, the Reverend Mr. Jubb happened in. The latter was the kindest of all to Lizzie. Finally, toward dusk, Mr. Harrington did appear. Sun-tanned and sandy and with both his striped bathing suits folded neatly in a strong brown paper. He took charge, and he asked Lizzie where her sister was. In Fairhaven, doing work for the Fruit and Flower Mission. Had her sister been there at the time her mother was murdered? She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. Very well, but where were you, Lizzie Borden? In the barn, getting a piece of iron. For what? Sinkers for my fishing. The whole morning? And in the garden. How did you happen to find your father dead? I was bringing him a pair. And the doctor? I would say your father was killed an hour and a half after your mother. What about that, Lizzie Borden? She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. Who do you think killed them, then? The same man who poisoned the milk. The same man who broke into the barn. The same man who my father saw loitering. Don't you think it's strange that Bridget was asleep and your sister out of town and you out in the garden, all of you out of the way for one hour and a half while your parents are murdered? Mrs. Borden cannot rightly be called a parent of mine. And these were the questions asked. And these the answers. Harrington asked them. The coroner asked them. The prosecuting attorney asked them. Yes, indeed, Lizzie was tried for murder, so there was a prosecuting attorney, and he asked them. These questions and a lot more. The trial lasted 13 days, and Lizzie Borden was adjudged not guilty. So, if Lizzie Borden was declared not guilty, we must assume this is the way our unknown murderer operated. Hot day on a busy street in Fall River. Murderer walking down it. Carrying axe. Mrs. Borden disposed of. Wait one hour and a half. Then... Mr. Borden. Then... Covered with blood, carrying a bloody axe, 
and no one noticed him. Or they'd go yelling for Mr. Harrington. No one did. So the murderer was never found. And Lizzie? She never married. She embraced other things. Till death thy endless mercies seal. And make the sacrifice complete. Amen. just a moment, Thomas Highland will tell you about our next crime classic. Fall River, tonight's crime classic, was adapted from the original court reports and newspaper accounts by Morton Fine and David Friedkin. The music was composed and conducted by Bernard Herman, and the program is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Thomas Highland is portrayed on radio by Lou Merrill. In tonight's story, Irene Tedrow was heard as Lizzie Borden. Featured in the cast were Jeanette Nolan, Betty Harford, Sarah Selby, Herb Butterfield, William Johnstone, and Paul Fries. Bob Lamon speaking. Here again is Thomas Highland. Next week, Rudgley, England in the year 1855, and a brilliant young medical man whose hobby was dead people and live racehorses. My report to you will be on The Hangman and William Palmer. Who won? Thank you. Good night. Tomorrow night, Van Johnson stars in the Thursday theater production of The Old Man's Bride. It's a modern John Alden romance with loads of surprises, as the man sent to fetch a bride for another learns plenty from a latter-day Priscilla with a strong mind of her own. It's the Thursday Theater, presented by CBS Radio tomorrow night on most of these same stations. Thursday night's Marlena Dietrich stars in Time for Love on the CBS Radio Network. The time that we were discussing earlier in the early 1950s when radio suddenly grew up, just as it was dying, do you foresee a future at all for radio drama? Because it has always impressed me that way too, that right about 1953, 
radio really came of age and became a legitimate art form just as its demise came along? Well, I saw it, sadly enough, just dying, uh, you know, like leaves falling from a tree in the autumn. Uh, program after program were taken off the air, and suddenly there was, you know, there was no radio drama at all, though there were a couple of attempts, but they didn't mount anything. Finally, there was just nothing left in, as far as radio drama went. It was a sad thing uh, because I, I do think it had finally grown up, and I hated to see it die. Unfortunately, Autolite canceled sponsorship of Suspense after June 7, 1954. Elliot Lewis left the production after July 27th. Phil Harris and Alice Fay went off the air on June 18th. Crime Classics found no sponsorship and shut down after June 30th. While Broadway Is My Beat left in November of 1953 before returning for four final broadcasts, ending its run on August 1st, 1954. On stage, left radio on September 30th, 1954. The networks were pumping more and more of their resources into TV. I think the only way it can come back is if somebody gives it a chance to come back. People seem to have forgotten that things have to be sold. It would be very difficult for you to sell me something I've never heard of and didn't know existed. And once I heard of it and found out it existed, didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the way that you run the railroad. No. You gotta let it let people know it's out there. The audience reaction was marvelous. People would pick it up and they'd listen to it, and as I say, mostly young audience. We see Shirley quite often. We see E. Jack, we see Mark Fine, High Aberback. I worked with Fletcher Markle on the last two shows. We see Fletcher and Dee. So the contacts are kept. We all worked very closely together in those days and as in any working relationship, in any business that you're in, when you've worked with people for 10 or 15 or 20 years, you've spent a lot of time with them, you know. Mm -hmm. You know what they can do. Exactly, and you're especially comfortable working with them. The radio business, the entertainment business, the writing business, is a high-risk business. High-risk in the sense that you're always working with your neck stuck out. And so... As many people who are sympathetic to that as you can find is <laughs> who you surround yourself with. Well, I can say amen to that. You know, well, of course. You're sitting there on the air, live, and you don't know what I'm going to say next, but you're hoping. In a year's time, Elliot Lewis went from one of radio's busiest people to a man looking for new ideas. He moved into the new media producing episodes of Climax and a Christmas special with Charles Lawton. You um, eventually evolved into writing for television. Through Elliot. 
through Elliot? Uh, Elliot was the uh, story assistant to Pertain Windus, who was the producer of Climax. And Elliot brought us over as story actors. Yeah. And that was our transition to uh, television. But Lewis was far from done with radio. His work in the 1950s, especially with On Stage, led CBS to revive the old Columbia Workshop in 1956. CBS Radio presents the CBS Radio Workshop, dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. This is Elliot Lewis. I believe there's a place for experimental drama in radio. CBS Radio also believes this, hence the Radio Workshop. The play you're going to hear is such an experiment. It's debatable whether it's too personal an experience. I don't think it is. And CBS Radio has been kind enough to give me the time to find out. Some of you may be offended, some revolted, some excited by the sharing of this experience. At all events, since it is an experiment, and since we'll be dealing with those strange depths in a man's mind called his subconscious, we ask your attention. The play is called Nightmare. There was an anecdote on Gunsmoke where uh, the agency band was sitting up in the booth or something and there was a line in the script that said uh, where Matt Dillon was supposed to have said, well, we're lucky that didn't happen. And he, and he just went through the roof. He said, well, you can't have the word lucky on a show that's sponsored by Chesterfield. Correct. That's the kind of thing we're talking about where agencies and sponsors and, and so forth just really should butt out and not be involved in We that. had one like that when I was producing the Lucy show at a Christmas show. Agency man is sitting there at the dress rehearsal. End of the Christmas show, group of child singers arrive at the door to sing a carol. And Lucy opens the door and says, Oh, come in, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, lovely closing. And they go, Joy to the world. And the agency man went right through the roof. Because that was a competing product. Mm. Joy. Incredible. You know. So if you're dealing with what we used to call the League of Frightened Men. All the people that are afraid to have opinions or, or have judgments or allow anybody else to have them for fear of rocking the boat. Boy, that's a devastating uh, series of words, the League of Frightened Men. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we always used to call them. You know, I used to have a, a cup on my desk that, that I kept pencils in, and I had painted on it a famous Fred Allen line, which is, where were you when the page was blank? There's an idea. Listen, Elliot Lewis, I appreciate you coming on more than I can say. It's been a delightful hour and uh, ten minutes, whatever we've done here. I haven't begun to ask you all the questions that I want to ask you sometime. I hope I can get you back sometime. Anytime, John. To do another another show. And I would also like to talk to your wife, Mary Jane Croft, who was a well-known radio actress for many years. Heavens, yes. All right, we'll get back with you. And thanks again. All right, fine, John. Thank you. Okay, take care. There were other shows that were in this general area of Western or period. One of them that I was connected with was Fort Laramie, starring Raymond Burr. It was a cavalry show, again, 1870 or 1875, in Wyoming. 
and a, a successful one. It had always been a rule of thumb in radio that there should not be any dead air, that people must keep talking. Well, we changed that, not because we deliberately set out to change it, but just because the people we were working with didn't talk all the time. So we had to fill it with sound patterns. We had three sound men for the most part, Bill James, Tom Hanley, Ray Kemper, who contributed more to the show than anybody could ever imagine. For example, the boys on their own time realized that we were having trouble with live gunshots. They, on a Saturday, went out with some equipment of their own and recorded shots on tape with a 45 and with a 38 and with a 32 and I think with a 22. These effects then could be played directly through the line so that it didn't flatten out and become just a, a dull pop. I had done a great many things. I was a forest ranger in the United States, or worked with the Forest Service for two years, digging ditches and building roads and dams and fighting fire. I worked on a sheep and cattle ranch in New Mexico. Fort Laramie. Herding sheep and cattle and building fences. Uh, I was a teacher at one time. I've done just about everything you can do. Fort Laramie, starring Raymond Burr as Captain Lee Quince. Specially transcribed tales of the dark and tragic ground of the wild frontier. The saga of fighting men who rode the rim of empire. And the dramatic story of Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. I feel that I know enough about the law after being involved in this show for seven years to be able to recommend a good lawyer. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's the winter of 1956 and Gunsmoke is the highest rated show on the air. Its radio success in the television era led CBS and Norman MacDonald to launch a second adult western. It's called Fort Laramie, and although it will only air for 10 months, it produces some of the best adult western radio drama of all time. We'll spend our Sunday afternoon with the show and find out how and why. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning and Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg. On the interview front, Sam Edwards, Alice Fay, Phil Harris, Elliot Lewis, Agnes Moorhead, Arch Obler, and Paula Winslow were with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Lillian Bayef, Mary Jane Croft, Sam Edwards, Betty Lou Gerson, Byron Kane, Lou Krugman, Elliot Lewis, and Jeanette Nolan were with Spurdvac. For more information, go to spurdvac.com. Elliot Lewis and E. Jack Newman were also with John Dunning for his 71 KNUS program from Denver. And Elliot Lewis was with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran, too, for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. 
hear this full interview at goldenage-wtic.org. Jack Crucian, Shirley Mitchell, and George Walsh were with Jim Bohannon. Morton Fine spoke with Dan Hafley for Spurdvac in 1988. William Conrad was with Chris Lambesis. Norman McDonald with John Hickman. And Raymond Burr was with Jack Webster. Selected music featured in today's episode was Rags to Riches by Tony Bennett, Manhattan by Blossom Deary, Pyramid of the Sun by Les Baxter, The Venice Dreamer, Parts 1 and 2 by George Winston, I'll Be Seeing You by the Harry James Band, and Caravan by Gordon Jenkins. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the new audio drama set in 1835 in New York City. It will be available everywhere you get your podcast and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Hendigas, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 114 will focus on Fort Laramie, one of the best adult radio westerns in the mid-1950s. We'll hear stories from the show and spotlight the industry during Dramatic Radio's waning years. This episode will be available beginning April 1st, 2021, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until April 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 113, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>